Do you want an exciting job in an emerging career field? How about industry-leading benefits and compensation packages? Or how about an opportunity to see the world and interact with invisible robots? Well, if any of that sounds like the kind of world you want to live in, let me introduce you to Chipco, the largest microchip manufacturer and scientific laboratories this side of the central northern Southeast Asian corridor, just west of Okinawa. We here at Chipco are looking for talented, motivated actuaries and researchers to staff our newly formed Aquatic Life Insurance Department. For no reason at all besides our general interest, Chipco has begun branching into the fields of molecular engineering, radiation, and animal life, and we need talented people just like you to help make our dreams a reality too. Stop by Chipco City to pick up an application, and while you're here, let Chuck, the invisible robot, show you the facilities where you'll be living, shopping, and sleeping while you're employed with us. Families are welcome, and we even offer education opportunities for the children of our top earners. Apply today and earn a bonus of 60000 Chipco dollars upon signing. That's enough to buy a Singapore sling from one of our sky bars, conveniently located in every helicopter. Thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pinchon. My name is Kate, and I'm one of the co-hosts. My name is Cody. I'm Luke. And I'm Will. And this week we're going to be beginning our discussion on Chapter 9. It became readily apparent to pretty much every single one of us that if this was going to be its own episode from beginning to end, it would probably have a runtime in the neighborhood of four or five hours, if not six, based upon the content of this chapter. So this week we're going to be discussing the first half of chapter nine, and then next week you'll be getting the second half of chapter nine from all of us. That being said, we are also all together as one. None of us are missing this week, which is an exciting uh, development in, in the world of our Vineland discussions. So Without further ado, Will, do you want to give us your summary of the first half of the book's chapter? Let's go. This sprawling chapter centers in real time uh, DL sharing the story of meeting Takeshi with Prairie. Uh, she'd been hounded by Ralph Wavone for some time with him looking to use her ninjet skills for the cleanup of Rock Vond particularly the vibrating palm, or as it's known in uh, Western film, uh, the ninja death touch. After a convoluted method of trying to lose herself, DL is kidnapped, suddenly, and shipped to Japan to be auctioned off as a white slave. Just as she begins to settle into her new role, she's sold off to some mysterious agent who's working for none other than Wavone himself, who won't settle for anyone less acquainted with Thond for the assassination. Dressed as a Frenesi stand-in, complete with colored contact lenses, she awaits her mark's arrival. And in the middle, we flash back to Kunoichi, and Takeshi has arrived and is sharing his side of the story with Prairie. In very short, he was working as a sort of claims adjuster for a corporate life insurance provider, 
we see a slice of his very competent and totally not surreal daily life, from fake Godzilla feet to beer and amphetamine. Lost between the bathroom and his bar stool, Takeshi wanders one day into a heated conversation featuring, yet again, Brock Bond. Suddenly, his usefulness rapidly identified Takeshi is in the back of a car, serving as a body double for Brock. He's sent into the back room of a gentleman's club, and there, the blinded Chastain and utterly befuddled Fumimoto do what each of them came to get done. The vibrating palm apparently requires deep familiarity with the target, so fortunately, DL flees immediately. And we see, as Ralph Wavone speaks to one of his conspirators about how that damn Brock Fond is some sort of roadrunner. Thank you, as always, Will, for that. Um, what did everyone think of, uh, of not the whole chapter, obviously, but this first section of chapter nine? I think it's, it's, it's good in setting up a couple of backstories. I think between these two halves, I think this is the lighter half. And uh, this, the second half, the back half of this, um, takes a much heavier and, and thematically darker turn. Um, but I still think there's a lot of uh, fun things that happen in this chapter. Obviously, the the uh, kind of renowned at this point Godzilla uh, <laughs> mention, uh, which comes back in the second half. Um, it, but then um, I, I I really Takeshi is such an interesting character, and I I think getting his backstory in this first half um and and more a little bit more in the second half but a lot of it comes here um gives him a lot of depth and and kind of helps understand his importance to this story i still think it's really interesting that we have we still have not actually seen brock at this point we're halfway through the book mm-hmm. um and his presence looms so large uh and you know he is so feared at this point but we like as a as a reader we only we're only getting these third-hand accounts um but they're still so effective at at portraying him as the villain that he is um it's just yeah i i i like this chapter it's not my favorite uh of of what we've read so far but i still i enjoyed it i i think i like the second half of it more than the first half though out of curiosity what is your favorite that we've read so far Oh, that's a good question. Um, probably either s- seven or eight. Probably eight. That's fair. Yeah. Will, what about you? I find the uh, the the sort of word world building. I'm not sure what else to call it. That's going on in this first half of chapter nine. Really engaging. I mean, it's it's very silly. It's mm-hmm. not. He's not. Pynchon is not sitting around crafting like some fantasy type world. But just the little touches to make the reality of this book slightly different from ours, pretty fun. I, I, I think that the uh, the way that we see DL and Takeshi kind of frame themselves through this first half of the chapter is uh, really compelling. And while, while I, I, I do find it hard to, to keep from slipping into discussion of the second half, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll endeavor. Uh, I do think that there's a lot in this alone. So if if I do that, listeners, uh, forgive me. It's my it's my fault. There's not there, there's plenty of stuff to talk about in this first half. 
But also, in theory, you should have read chapter nine if you're even listening to this this yeah. episode. So yeah. I, I feel like this would be a very weird show to listen to if you weren't actually reading or have read the book. <laughs> no, no, I, I did just mean that, you know, if you get frustrated that I'm not staying on topic, uh, you're frustrated with me. <laughs> Luke, what about you? What did you think of the first half of this chapter? Um, so this chapter is probably, I think, probably my favorite chapter in the book. Um, that may change by the time we get to the end. Um, you know, I really love the the intro of the Godzilla character. That that whole thing. It, it seems like, and I mean, I don't know if I'd have this opinion if there weren't those rumors going around in the past uh, about Pynchon writing a Godzilla or a Mothra novel, uh, which does seem to have been kind of folded into this novel. Um, but I don't know. Like, it, it seems like it, that's like almost like it's like a beginning of a novel just kind of thrown into the middle of Vineland. Um, where it seems like we're almost like starting a completely different book at that during that section. I mean, it's, it's, I get, I guess in the, Chat before this one, we get some some stuff set in Okinawa, uh, but you know most of this chat, most of this book is set in California. So switching settings to J- Japan seemed kind of revitalized my my reading of this book. Um, yeah, I, re- I really love the, these chapters. This chapter, uh, the first half of this chapter. I mean, I like probably maybe I like the second half of the chapter about the same, uh, but the first half. There's a lot to like. I mean, the opening thing with like, you know, I mean, we'll probably get to this, but uh, I find it really funny that DL is eating. It's being forced to eat like plastic uh, shrimp, I think. Um, yeah. And, yeah. And mm-hmm. in the, in the opening of this chapter, uh, there's a lot of kind of absurdity in this in this chapter. That's really nice. Um, even, you know, Takeshi's constant drug taking is is pretty funny. Uh, the fact that he doesn't sleep and he's constantly um, popping pills and stuff is really funny to me. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't, and the whole, the whole, you know, Takeshi and and DL's little encounter um, is is well done. I think um, I love the Takeshi character in general, um, especially in this chapter. He's he's a really entertaining protagonist. He's really entertaining to follow around. Um, his dialogue is generally really, really stylized and, and fun to read. Um, and there is some darkness in this in this first half of this chapter too. It's not really treated like the the auction scene is. For most authors, I think they wouldn't treat it so lightly as as Pynchon does. You know, DL is is shown as trying to make the best of it, um, but you know she's basically being human trafficked. Um, mm-hmm which you know is not is not necessarily a super light topic especially in in 2023 but um you know pension kind of portrays it as maybe not a joke but as you know he kind of focuses on the absurdity of it and i mean dl you know she's a ninja she's really good at martial arts so it's not like she was she's really going to be in too much physical danger i guess um but there's some sadness in this chapter too. I mean, there's the there's the girl that TL encounters who I want to say is from like Laos or something. I'm I don't think it's Laos, but some Southeast Asian country that I, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's something about like how she was stolen from a village that no one she's she'll ever encounter for the rest of her life as any idea exists. And 
nobody will say anything to her for the next few days. And it's a, it's a nice mixture of, of kind of really depressing stuff and kind of uh, more absurd, um, a more absurd tone. I really like the first half of this chapter. Yeah, I, I think that maybe lightness isn't necessarily the the way to talk about it because I don't know if it's if the the kidnapping and the the being sold into slavery is treated as light per se, but it, it is more that we're seeing it from DL's perspective. She is at the beginning of this this story. She is you know essentially trying to abandon everything about herself and. For that purpose, as you know, so as somebody who can, you know, at any point say, all right, I'm done, I'm getting out of here. And, you know, she can just make people die if she wants to. Mm -hmm. You know, the, it, it's a much more of a kind of, it seems like, seems more of a device to d illustrate her general depression. No, I get what you're saying. I mean, light is that is probably the wrong word. Um, she does seem kind of detached from her surroundings. Um, even the fact that she leaves her life behind so easily in the beginning of the chapter um, speaks to a certain restlessness and um, detachment, I guess. And I mean, you know, like I mean, Eastern Eastern religion, which we all talked about last week, is is related to martial arts. Um, does you know you know does emphasize um detachment from everyday life which i think dl kind of personifies in the beginning of this chapter yeah well i think it's also easy for her to make the to, to sever those connections just given her uh her history her past with her dad and everything um she kind of had to be put into that position to where she has to be able to detach from the people that are close to her at, at any given moment and just be able to get up and go well, I, I was going to say, it isn't even necessarily just that. That's certainly a part of it from a practicality standpoint of, you know, what she can use her martial arts training for, but also the the reality of why she decided to become, you know, this martial arts master and this, you know, very, this very tough woman was largely because of how her dad behaved and her yeah, dad's, yeah. like, very, uh, like, just straight-up evil manner of being that she was never al allowed to confront in the way that she was hoping to. And so, like, we we do look at DL as this amazing, you know, badass character, because that is absolutely what she is. But at the end of the day, the reasoning behind the initial impetus to become who she is did not pan out for her. And now she's finding herself in a position where she is being sought out to kill people for the mob, which just, I mean, I think thinking about that historicity of where she came from, why she did what she did and where that's led her, that would make you pretty depressed. Yeah. Oh, like, for yeah, sure. definitely. And it's not overt on the page. Like it, it, they don't pinch on doesn't, you know, just put it right in your face that this is why she feels this way. It's something that you have to infer by thinking about it. Um, and you really probably wouldn't even think about why she's doing it if when she is eventually caught by Ralph, she doesn't say that line, you know, I wanted a vacation from my life. That's a very, that's a very depressed person explanation for, for mm -hmm. behavior like that. 
Yeah, and one one of the scenes we do see in this first half is is it in the first half with Frenesi? It is, right? Am I crazy? Which which scene? Which yeah. Well, the the one where she's talking about Superman. Yeah, that's in the yeah, first okay. half. I, for some reason, I cannot find anything I'm looking for right now <laughs> in terms of the book. It's when she runs away to Ohio. Uh huh. Um. Anyway, but there's all, even I, I'm not going to say more covertly placed. But as quietly mentioned is the fact that, you know, DL is clearly, maybe it's platonic, but clearly in love with Frenesi. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's platonic. It's not I don't platonic. Either. I don't <laughs> it's either. pretty just... explicitly stated in the last chapter. Was I'm it? pretty... Uh, kind it really, of. It was very loosely implied, I thought. Because that's how I read it, but... Again, you know, interpretation. Per- perhaps to a gentleman of the straight world persuasion. Well, it, yeah, but my, my other straight guys read it is all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to not alienate 90% of our audience. That's fair. As, uh, as, as, a, as a homosexual female, it's, it's pretty obvious. No, I, I, again, I get it. <laughs> I get it. I'm just saying it's not literally explicit. Anywho, point is... Um, you know, she's lost the love of her life. By the end of this book, it's made pretty clear. Frenesi mm-hmm. was the love of DL's life. And it, it's truly something that she's she cannot handle. And, you know, she's running away from that, the, you know, sense of defeat for not standing up to her father. And she ends up with Frenesi. And Frenesi runs off and, you know, gets with Brock Bond. And now she's just kind of going through the motions. And, you know, then she gets kidnapped. Why not? You know, screw it. She wasn't doing anything anyway. I think another um, another part of her biography that is is um, is important here is the fact that she was an army brat and is probably used to moving around a lot uh, as mm-hmm. a kid. Um, you know, I, I was not personally an army brat, but I've, I've come across. I've been friends with some, had been coworkers with some. And they tend to... Um, be a little bit more uh, kind of um, adaptable when it comes to their living situation and stuff like that. Um, so I do think that that's another aspect of her biography that comes into play in this chapter. Yeah, that's for sure. Um, so the, the really kind of moving from overall impressions to sort of the the events at hand, like, you know, Ralph Wavone, who we've, we've gotten to know as a... Um, as a gentleman of of business and leisure uh, in the previous chapters, comes and visits her when he is still a uh, mafioso. And the thing that I found particularly interesting about this scene, it's a small moment, but when Brock, in a very, you know, TV tropey way, slides a photograph over to uh, the, you know, this, this hitman that he's looking to contract, he explains that the reason why he hates Brock Fond is because Brock Fond has gone from working uh, in his previous department to to drug enforcement. Like that's where he he seems to think his like next big paycheck or, or big you know break as an FBI agent or a federale is really at. And I think this is an interesting detail. This could be another one of these you know crazy conspiracy corners that's not actually crazy nor a conspiracy nor a corner as we've had over the course of going through this book, but. I think it's interesting that this is somebody who that were initially introduced to as seemingly a legitimate businessman 
but who clearly has not always been that way. Same with the rest of the kind of mafia party. But in these chapters, it's very clear that, you know, this is from a time when he was in the mafia. But specifically, the issue he's upset with with Brock is that he's now doing drug enforcement, which, as the book says, is a problem for his friends. And if you know anything about, like, the history of organized crime in the United States, drugs was really what kind of destroyed it in the, like, late 70s, 80s, and then a little bit in the 90s, like when, because it used to be that, you know, the mob never involved themselves in the drug trade. That was the one thing they didn't do. And then as soon as they started to get involved with the drug trade, that was when a lot of them, you know, went to jail. And a lot of these big RICO cases were finally, you know, successful in breaking up the different uh, crime families that exist in the U.S. And so the fact that that is mentioned, and then just a little bit further in time, we see that Ralph really has no option but to go legitimate you know, so to speak, I think is mm-hmm. is another interesting piece of just pinch on understanding history from all these different angles and including these small elements to to build a more complete picture of who these people are and how they've ended up in the position that they're in. Yeah, I, I can't yeah. add anything to that. That's I mean, you summarized <laughs> it perfectly. <laughs> um, well, perhaps you can shed some light on your thoughts as Brock as a stand-in for Reagan that you have in the notes. Yeah, here, uh, well, actually, I wanted to get y'all's thought on that because um, when I was reading this, it's the last paragraph in, on page 130 for uh, on my edition. Um, it's the quote, same public servant he always was, only bigger, much, much bigger. He figures he won his war against the lefties. Now he sees his future in the war against drugs. Some dear friends of mine are quite naturally upset. Um, obviously, you know, this is a book that heavily connects to the uh, Reagan era and its politics and, and the impact that those politics had on on society. And um, I, I can't help but read that as, you know, Reagan as an actor in the early 50s and 60s was, you know, famous for uh, working against a lot of other uh, a lot of other actors and people in the Screen Actors Guild when he was when they were trying to go after all the the quote unquote leftists and communists, um, you know he was one of the ones that was providing names and working with um, McCarthy and all those clowns that were running that shit show. Um, and then obviously later, in a bizarre series of events, went into politics and became the president and basically took what Nixon started with the war on drugs and, um. I mean, to tie it even closer into this book, turned it into a freaking kaiju monster that rampaged the country and and destroyed <laughs> countless lives. And um, so I, I couldn't help but read that and think that maybe that was, you know, there's a, a connect between uh, Brock and and Reagan in that sense. Not saying Brock was an actor, but just the the, the idea of him working against, you know, starting small, working against the the, the left and and then working his way up into the into the drug enforcement and and clamping an iron fist down in that sense especially i like i definitely see where you're going and especially from a, a standpoint of history like reagan didn't start the drug war that was started by nixon but it certainly was given that massive expansion when reagan became president and kind of stepped into that role the same thing would be true of of brock in these chapters where he didn't start the war on drugs he didn't start you know, get his foot in, you know, on the, on the ground floor, so to speak, of that particular type of enforcement, but rather jumped into it when he saw that that was the next, like, you know, big battleground or place yeah, where yeah. he could he could continue expanding. 
I mean, that's how I've always seen it as you know, Nixon, Nixon started it as a sort of like, I need to do something to get myself out of the shit that I've kind of put myself into. Get him um, out of the water. Never really, salad. Yeah. And never really took it. I don't want to say he didn't take it seriously, but I mean, he had Elvis running things for that. So <laughs> he certainly wasn't competent in his handling of it. Uh, but then Reagan, that was a hold my beer moment where, you know, Reagan saw that as his opportunity to like really pander to what was becoming a uh, very much more hardline conservative party um, that he wanted to, I think, cement his legacy in. And he absolutely did, um, you know, for all the ills that the, dr- the war on drugs caused, if nothing else, it cemented Reagan's status in politics. And it still is arguably the one thing he's most known for. Yeah, I mean, you could, you could. Now that I'm really thinking about it, you could really take that comparison out and extrapolate it even further from a standpoint of the fact that you know, Brock Vaughn is clearly not a moral person. Like he is not above doing things, you know, for exactly, yeah, for, for and ill. And Reagan, Reagan did the exact same thing, especially in the context of the of the war on drugs, with the deliberate, you know, uh, importing of of drugs into into predominantly black neighborhoods in the country and all of the different things that he used the the drug trade to do, you know, everything his, that his happened in South America. With. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Knocking down democracies. Be, yeah. I mean, Reagan, I mean, Reagan and Brock are both shown to be opportunists uh, or Brock is an opportunist and I would, I would call Reagan an opportunist. Um, I call Reagan we a lot of about, things. Opportunist is a thing. Well, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we, we were talking about Argo, you know, a while ago, like an hour ago or something before we started really getting into the book. And, um, you know, Reagan, it, I, I don't know all the details, but, you know, Reagan, like, timed the release of the hostages to his inauguration and stuff, mm-hmm. um, which is definitely an opportunist type thing. Uh, another thing with Reagan is, you know, Reagan was pretty high up in, in SAG, I want to say, before he got into politics. Um. Which you know, SAG is. You can say I don't. I don't know a lot about SAG. Um, you know, the recent strike kind of made it a little bit more of a talking point, a little bit more of a thing that is in the news and stuff. But you know, I mean, it it is um, a. Uh, what's the it's a fascinating word? subject to to learn about. Um, well, I think we talked about it a few episodes ago. I posted a, a link in Twitter to a video that Maggie May Fish did about the Hollywood blacklist and everything. And there's a big section in there on Reagan and his uh, role and all of that. So if anyone's unfamiliar with that, I would say go watch that. Cause it's a really good explanation of what happened. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to run through a really quick summary of the reason why you are, you're, you're seeing that as that particular line of same public servant. He always was as resonant with Reagan for, for any fellow youths who might not be familiar with his whole history, <laughs> because most people, most people like under the age of 30 at this point just aren't going to have been aware that he was even the governor of California. Yeah. Very brief timeline. Uh, in 19, in 1947, he became the president of the screen actors guild and, uh, was involved in the Hollywood blacklist of, uh, outing supposed communist sympathizers to the FBI. And later, in 1966, he won the election to become the governor of California. And at that point, um, 
if you look into the history of gun control in California, mm-hmm. that is when it all starts. And it all starts because Reagan begins to uh, crack down on the public carry of firearms, specifically by black people. Because what's happening in the 60s in California is the Black Panther Party is becoming quite powerful. And, uh, yeah. And, of course, you know, 15 years later, he becomes the president on a platform of, you know, gun rights and small government and the drug war. And that's where it gets into everything everyone else has already mentioned. I just wanted to provide that background for anyone who's looking at this line and thinking, wait a second, wasn't Reagan just an actor? Because he wasn't. He had 30 years of essentially backstabbing. (laughs) Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and that whole uh, that whole situation with the Black Panther Party and and the the power that they gained that scared a lot of uh, white Republicans is a very very common thread through a lot of uh, pensions, especially early work. Like especially like Gravity's Rainbow um, ties into some of that in the fact that it was being written at the time that all that was happening. Um. So. It yeah, Reagan. I could go on. We could do a whole thing. The uh, the word I was looking for earlier, which is pretty close, I can think about it. Think of it, but is the word union. And what I was pointing out is going from like being a president or high up in a union to being like maybe th- I want to. I mean, I would call Reagan perhaps the most conservative president we've ever had. One of the most conservative presidents, at least in the modern era. Yeah. Um. You know, going. I That's mean, I get fair, that. Yeah. That is fair. You know, like you know that that does show a level of opportunism that uh, isn't necessarily present in a lot of other politicians, even which you know you you describe many American politicians as opportunists. But that switching that kind of switching sides is is pretty next level. Yeah, especially when again for the youth is out there. Um, Reagan is the person who told the air traffic controllers to get back to work or they'd all be fired and they would put untrained people into the air traffic control towers. So that's how much of a traitor he was in that regard. Yeah, he's he's uh, just the slimiest person that that has probably ever been president in, in the modern era. And it's I, I really can't emphasize enough how much what he did set the groundwork for where we are now. Like yeah. that, and that's what I think a lot of what Violin is getting at too. Um, granted, you know, thirty years ago uh, was that the moves that were happening between the '60s and and the '80s by you know not just Reagan but the people that were that were backing him and that he was backing absolutely shaped the way things went for a long time. And I think Vineland is very prescient in knowing that it wasn't going to stop in 1990, that it was going to keep reverberating throughout a a long period of American history. Yeah. I mean, this book was published only six years after the time period in which the events are taking place. in. so it's very clear that, that, that was something he was thinking about as he was writing and inevitably publishing it. So that kind of brings us to, you know, DL's decision to decide to run away instead of immediately take on this job to go execute Brock Fond. And we've already kind of talked about some of the background, you know, kind of character work for why she does that and and where her mental state is at. But what about what about this actual portion where she's kind of traversing different areas of the country and trying to 
make a different life for ourselves for herself rather did did we have any thoughts what did you guys think about this this portion before she goes off to the auction i really like this part um it features there's probably it's probably going to be my pick for uh my favorite quote prose quote from this section uh it does kind of deal with there are some tropes in there you know like going into the gas station bathroom and emerging a different person is definitely a mm-hmm. tv and movie trope that you see a lot um i i really enjoyed the description of her shopping for like pastel clothes uh yeah not like not just <laughs> not just pastel but vibrantly pastel which i love yeah. as a description that Pinchon uses but even just like everything about her like I, it's she in like living in columbus which i want to say is ohio yeah um that whole description of um, her completely changing her life and kind of, um, I think she's called the small town spinster pursuing a perfectly diminished life. Um, you know, leaving everything behind and becoming just kind of another American woman who, you know, has never been interviewed by agro world. And is just kind of, you know, I, I think she's depicted as working in an office maybe. Um I just really love that whole thing. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, she's doing typing and filing is what what Pinchon says. Which that might be, now that I think about it, that might be a Confederacy of Dunces um, reference. I mean, maybe like a a very small one, but that's what Ignatius does in Confederacy of Dunces at the the factory. Um, That just now occurred to me. But um, I, I know like all the stuff about Clark Kent and Lois Lane um, and how like, you know, being Clark Kent was like Superman's vacation from himself. Mm-hmm. Um, I found very poignant and um, cool and just not really something that I've, you know, I'm not really, I don't, I, I like comic books. I, I've read some comic books, um, not so much Superman comic books besides like maybe one or two um, like collections of them, but not very many. Um but I just, so I'm not really big on, I don't really know like a lot of like, I don't really know if the, even if there is like theory about comic books and that kind of stuff. There is. Yeah. The way that there is, yeah. I'm sure that there is. I mean, especially on the internet, but I've never seen discussions of Clark Kent being like a vacation for Superman. And, um, especially I, I really like that, especially in the context of, I think it's framed as like an argument between her and Frenessi about it. Am I correct about that? Like she's like remembering back. Um, it, it, she's like she's recounting it to um to Prairie, but in, within the scene, she's talking to someone who worked at I think the newspaper building that she worked next to, if I remember correctly, is where she's within the actual scene itself telling that quote to. I I think she's talking to Frenesi. I is think she? yeah. Okay. I think so. I think what it's supposed to be is she's like ruminating on it while she's doing her work. Oh, yeah. I also just love that she becomes like a regular at a bar and just like talks to other regulars at the bar. I always love it when (laughs) when uh, characters do that, when they just like disappear and become normal people and just pick a bar to start going to and become a regular. I don't I don't know why I love that that trope, but um, it's always entertained me a lot. Yeah, as far as far as how I feel about that section, I think it's uh... And it's kind of just a deep dive into DL's state of mind at that period of her life. And it's, I mean, it's, uh, it's tortured. Um, but at the mm-hmm. same time, like, like you said, Luke, uh, 
it's really beautiful. It, you know, we've been talking a lot about movies off and on mic, and you know, if if this were a film, <clears throat> it would you know this section might be called a a tone poem. <laughs> um, but it, it's it's quite effective in that way. Was that a genuine throat clear, or was that? Uh, it was an ironic. Did, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Cody, what about you? I, I will pretty much summed up how I viewed it is. Yeah. Um, so I can't really, I don't think I could really add much to that. Um, other than yeah, I'm, I'm with, I agree with Luke in that it's a, there is a certain um, almost romantic uh, f- idea or, or, or feel to that disappearing and, and kind of becoming a, a regular at a, at a bar somewhere. It's, you know, one of those, things that I think everybody at some point kind of feels like they would want to do, but mm-hmm. just, you can't ever, you know, it's it, the idea of actually dropping everything like that is uh, a scary kind of prospect. And I think that's part of probably the appeal of it is um, the courage that it takes to do something like that in the first place. But um, yeah, I think Will summed it up pretty much what I was going to say. So yeah, well come to Wisconsin if you ever want, you know, that to be your life. Cause that is just sort of, how people here live. Is that, a, is that a criticism? Should she have gone to? <laughs> should she have gone to Wisconsin? I think it would have been Columbus? more realistic than Columbus. I have a sister who lives in Columbus, so uh, I, I I'm familiar. I feel like Wisconsin would be a bit more accurate, but I don't think Pinchon has spent much time in either of those two states <laughs> that we know of. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> but the Midwest is very much a. I moved here and now I'm reinventing myself and i'm a regular at a bar that's certainly my experience uh in in living here my entire life so that brings us to the eventual auction scene and we kind of at the beginning of the show talked a bit about it but did we have any further thoughts on on this scene it is certainly um to get back to to luke's point earlier it it feels like something that should have a darker undertone than it does as it's, as it's playing out. That's, that's for sure. Um, it's an interesting tone that, that Pinchon strikes with it. And I think that it does, it, it is accurate to say that it comes from how DL herself is interacting with it. She isn't necessarily taking it to be this awful thing. She's, she's doing it to, to further her escape from, from herself. Did we have any other thoughts or, ideas or feelings about this particular section of the chapter? I, I don't necessarily, I do kind of like, there was a part of me reading it that I, I wished that the Lobelia character had been a little more present and mm-hmm. then we could have gotten more of her. You know, I, I don't know what it was. There was just something about that, um, innate caretaking sense that came in through her, you know, where she was kind of making sure that, um, that DL was taken care of and that, you know, she was presenting herself in, in the right way to, to get through the whole thing. And um, I don't know, there's something about that character just kind of made me want more of that character, even though she's only on like two pages altogether. It is, it is a very interesting, and I think that that is part of what lends itself to, I hesitate to use a word like warmth to describe the scene because it is women being sold. Um, it is, but I think but, that's where that caretaker element comes in. I yeah. think that's what makes it feel that like there's a protective aura that's put around, um, not just DL, but the reader, like 
by Lobelia stepping in, I, you kind of get the feeling like, okay, like DL can absolutely take care of herself. No doubt about that. But this is, I think, uncharted territory for her. Mm-hmm. And Lobelia seems to have at least a, an understanding of what's going on to the point that she can step in and be like, look, here's, you know, just do this, this, and this, and you'll, you should be fine. You know? And I think that in in a moment like that, in a moment of, of darkness that you're going into this unknown situation, no matter how uh, adept you are at, at navigating unknown situations, I think there's always an element or an undercurrent of, of fear going into those and to have someone step out and kind of shine a light and, and say like, Hey, I'm here. Like, you're you're getting we'll get through this you'll you know it's going to be shitty but we'll get through it i think lends a little bit of warmth to a an otherwise very dark and, and cold scene yeah i think it's also pretty interesting that lobelia isn't like the rest of the people there and that she is i mean it's it's quite possible that, that she is a trans woman it's implied um, it's absolutely yeah, implied. absolutely implied and and for that to sort of be present in this in this context and and have you know this person who okay i'm going to try and condense my thoughts to not make it into a 15 minute monologue but to have it to to have a i'm just going to say she's a trans woman because i don't know how else to interpret it to have a trans woman who looking at it from a trans experience has already sort of gone through a period where she has had to learn how to make herself look more feminine, more attractive every single day as she's transitioned, having that be the person who not only provides a very mothering, caretaking instinct in this situation that is viewed, you know, in black and white, incredibly fucked up, but is also taking her skills that she has learned through her life outside of this auction and applying it to someone who's very clearly lost and has ended up here because of how lost she is feeling to to better her makeup skills and to better her presentation for for these these people who are going to be bidding i think is a really interesting choice by pinchon and a very a very daring choice for 1990 yeah at a time where trans characters were not portrayed well yeah at all yeah, what is the, the crying game? Either crying game, Ace Ventura. Yeah, like, like it, it, I don't know if everybody reading this book in 1990 would have read. I'll just read the the paragraph. Um, Dense transport and travel clamored all day, all night long. The rickety hotel, almost a disposable building, was pressed shuddering between the Yamamoto line and Expressway One. The girls ate yakitori from carts on Showa and were permitted out in supervised groups, only to shop at the pitches under the tracks. Some of these girls, the market being what it was, were boys, of whom Deal's friend Lobelia was among the most glamorous. Wow, she had introduced herself. You are a mess. Launching then unbidden into a verbal hair-to-toenails makeover for Deal, who at some point ducked her head, murmuring, Guess I should be writing some of this down. Like, I don't know if everybody in 1990 would have understood what Pinchon was implying in that paragraph. Yeah. But for Pinchon to not only imply that, but to also, because I've said it in the last, I think, two episodes that we've recorded, to imply the history that exists within a character through one or two sentences, you know, of this, yeah. of this trans woman 
knowing how to to more glamorously make up this other woman that implies a lot about that character that you only really understand if you a get what he's implying what he's implying but also b what a real life experience for someone who is trans would be especially from a standpoint of, of being a trans woman it's it's pretty amazing um yeah and it's it's another one of those moments where the um the popular interpretation of how Pinchon handles women is is often not correct. Yeah. Or at least unfair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and and again, I think for for this coming out the time it did to and it again, Lobelia is not a a major character, but to oh. to have the portrayal of a trans woman that way like humanizing. It you know, mm-hmm. she's not portrayed as anything but a human being. Um was at the time almost unheard of, honestly. Um, because that was, as we mentioned with Crying Game and, and Ace Ventura, and I'm, I'm sure there's a couple we're missing, representation in that sense was not a thing, really. I can think of, I think the only other portrayal of a trans woman in popular culture at that time would have been Twin Peaks. I can't think of any other... I think Dallas had a trans woman on there, but I don't think they handled it well. If I remember correctly, I don't remember Dallas well enough. I think it was Dallas, but yeah, it's, I mean, it's, we've, we've come a long way, not, not far enough, but Mm -hmm. a lot of progress has been made since, since 1990. And I'm, I'm, I was glad to see that it was, it was handled the way it was. Definitely. If this is something that, by the way, cause I, I understand the demographics that Pinchon mostly appeals to. If you are someone who doesn't have a lot of understanding of why this is a big deal or of like what Cody and I have referenced with the crying game or, you know, Ace Venture, all that, there is an excellent documentary on Netflix called Disclosure that was executive oh, yeah, produced that was good. by Laverne Cox that goes into a lot of the portrayal of not just LGBT people, but specifically trans people um, mm-hmm. in, in media at the time. Uh, I, I'd highly recommend that is a good overview of what we're talking about and how this sort of starkly stands in contrast to that. I don't know if the quote you read really says what you're saying. <laughs> uh, but more seriously, uh, I, I think that a lot of the... the you, you hesitated, but I do think warmth is the right way to phrase it. The warmth in this section is coming from this camaraderie. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's the same kind of camaraderie that comes out of uh those cultish abusive games that we talked about in the last couple episodes True. like the, the you know, it's it's not a good thing but it's there and it's sometimes it's all you have as a human and i think that the way that it's portrayed is very uh yeah i don't know about realistic i've never been uh up for auction so i can't say about realism but it feels <laughs> believable and beyond that, I think that there's one phrase in particular that, that really outlines what's going on here, and it's DL remembering beauty contest interviews back on the childhood tube. And, you know, there's been a lot more conversations since 1990 about beauty pageants and especially uh, the American phenomenon of childhood beauty pageants, which I don't think is, you know, I misread this the first time. I actually thought it was talking about childhood beauty pageants. But yeah, no, it, anyway. This is something that 
is part of American culture is this kind of putting women on an auction block, even yep. if you're not actually buying them. The attitude mm -hmm. is there. We have a script for it. And that's what DL is able to lean into. And that's scary. Yep, that's for sure. So assuming that, that there's nothing else to add, um, DL is purchased by uh, none other than Ralph Wavone. Um, and is sped to to their hotel room that has been rented where there was um there was a very good bit of of just sort of i think character work that was included in her car ride over to the hotel where she looks at the the orchid corsage and realizes that this is the first time she's ever been given one of those because at no point in her life did she ever attend any you know proms or homecomings or dances or anything like that like that is such a devastating, like, I, that was a line that really stopped me in my tracks of the the inherent sadness that exists there. Not that there's anything wrong with skipping dances when you're in school, but the idea that the first time she would be receiving flowers from a date like that would be in this situation where she's been purchased from what is effectively an auction for, you know, prostitution but with the expectation that not only is she going to sleep with this guy, but is also going to kill people for him. Like that is such a, a speaking of a connection back to, to beauty pageants and, and childhood beauty pageants and all of that. Like it, it's such an innocent thing that most people associate with, with their younger years when you're in high school and when you go to prom with whoever, you know, you're dating at the time. And for her to receive it so much later in her life speaks to, A, the things that she gave up in pursuit of martial arts, but also, B, just, just yeah, it, it was something that, without overextending a, a simple line, it was something that really hit me as I read it. Yeah, that line does stand out um, in terms of fleshing out the character of DL and, and kind of going back to, I want to say it's the chapter before this about her backstory. Um, mm -hmm. And how, you know, she was skipping school and wasn't really uh, doing a lot of typical childhood. She didn't have a lot. She didn't, you know, do a lot of typical ch childhood milestones, I guess. Um, and it does kind of speak to how, you know, she she seems to spend most of her life um, in, in more male-dominated spaces. Oh, and, and there's a, you know, there's a silver lining in that sentence you know it's it's very specific it's the first orchid corsage in her life maybe uh maybe Fernezzi had platonically given her a rose corsage possible you never know you do you never know i i think Fernezzi also had feelings for for dl oh, that is it just a joke just to be yeah clear. oh no i know i know <laughs> but like there there's an alternate universe where pinchon wrote a sapphic romance between the two of them after she hopped on that motorcycle and oh yeah i wouldn't be surprised if that was written and I, just left <laughs> out of the book yeah yeah i i would have preferred it stay in because that that one line uh when that happens in the previous chapters made made, made me interested enough that i would have read a lot more of it <laughs> um so yeah and then we we get an, an interesting you know moment in the hotel room where ralph is kind of soft pitching a job offer to her yeah uh, using a lot of corporate speak rather than um 
rather than you know what you'd expect from a guy like that does anyone want to read that quote i I I have it right here yeah okay great um, on page 139 can you do uh, an accent (laughs) oh i don't know I, i probably can't not not well enough um they drifted across the neutral carpet and crooners crooned and the storm came sweeping on he was careful mouth close to her ear to speak only during instrumental breaks you might even get to like working for us. Our benefits package is the best in the field. You get to veto any assignment. We don't ask for weekly quotas, but we do run a cash flow assessment on each of you quarterly. It's, uh, <laughs> as someone who works in corporate America, it's, it's disturbingly spot on. Yep, that is for sure. And it, it's just, you know, it's a taste of, of where he was going to end up anyway. Yep. Yep, I, yep. I I love that it sort of parallels that scene from chapter seven where he takes, is it his nephew? Like uh, that he throws his arm around and brings in close and he's like, so what you got to understand yeah, is yeah. where like it, 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 I enjoy the fact that it's, it's a parallel image of him, you know, putting his, his arm around, around this woman and doing the he's, same kind of thing, but it's actually illegal this time what he's describing. Yeah. He's that kind of guy who has no concept of personal space. Like he's always right up on your ear. Yeah, what Seinfeld um, would call a close talker. A close talker. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> um, after that, we get you know, she she obviously accepts. She starts you know being dressed up as as Frenesi in what is a pretty similarly devastating like description when she realizes what's actually happening to her. Um, and we get that great line where, where Prairie kind of breaks into the narrative and realizes what she's hearing and kind of all of the impressions that she has of her mother up until then fade away. And really all DL has left to, to tell her in response is, I don't know either. <laughs> like yeah. it's, that's, it's not what we expected either. Um, uh, before we move on to, to everything with, with uh, the King of Monsters, does anyone have anything to add about that closing section where Furnessy's dressed up, or not Furnessy, where DL is dressed up as Furnessy? Correct me if I'm wrong, but I do think that, uh, I think it's on page 141, it's the first time that Prairie kind of cuts in in this chapter. I was about to say, I, I, I love the way that she cuts in throughout the chapter. That's one of my mm-hmm. favorite things about this chapter. Yeah, yeah. agreed. It is really entertaining to to sit there and like read this book and, and imagine DL and Takeshi like taking turns telling their story and you know like it's such a long chapter that you would think that it would take like hours or days for the story to be told um, verbally. I mean, at least hours probably. Well, there is um, an indication that it takes at least days because yeah. when Takeshi and DL start to like cross in the narrative in a little bit later of uh, from where we're currently at, like. There's a mention that, you know, Prairie had first met Takeshi a few days ago when he like burst into the into the room talking about wanting to be put on the um whatever that that machine was that he was convinced revived him. So I think there is an indication that it's taken at least days for them to go through everything. Yeah, I think it's I think it's one like late night and then the next morning. Yeah. That's how I read it at least. Uh I I just I find the whole way that uh DL is trying to to deal with uh, the relationship between Brock and Frenesi. We only get a very narrow frame of it. Mm-hmm. We, uh, and I think that it's really notable that up in, 
till this point, we've gotten some some brief mentions of it, and it won't stop. If anything, it will accelerate the the talk about Frenesi having this this fetish for authority figures, men in uniform. Yeah, yeah, and I do love that the choice there is, and I don't know if it's supposed to be DL's perspective or some omniscient narrator's perspective or what. You know, it doesn't matter. I, I think it's really telling that. Uh, Bond has this fetish for her too. That that she is just as at this point a simulacrum that he like like a totem he worships at almost. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, they're all they're also worshiping at something inherently rebellious from who they are as people. Like Frenesi is supposed to be this sort of free spirited, you know, hippie free love individual, and Brock is supposed to be this, you know. It, I'll say proto, proto Bigfoot character. Yeah. Um, you know, they're supposed to hate each other, but they are, they are very much, uh, I don't know if I want to say in love, infatuated with one another um, in, in the way that they are. Like, the, it is, there's also something in there about, like, falling in love with that, which is inherently, you know, poisonous to you or something along those lines to, to speak about it poetically. It's a very interesting dynamic that... yeah. I would I wouldn't call it love. It's not that. I I think no. obsession or or attachment is probably more of an apt description of what they have. It's weird and it's uh, yeah, it's it's just it is a really interesting dynamic. That's yeah, I can't really phrase it any better than that. Absolutely. But the the inherent tragedy of being forced to dress as the woman you're in love with to trick the person that she I can't think of a word other than left you for, even though they weren't together, um, is, yeah, that's, I can't imagine what that, what that feels like. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's, it's not an enviable, enviable position that that DL's put into for sure. Mm -hmm. Um, and it's, it, it is, you know, I, I think, it's it, this is another one of those situations i think that it's it's a moment of darkness that has a a sort of levity to it that keeps it from being too dark um and it's balanced in such a way that it you know it never it doesn't really topple over onto itself it very easily could have been mishandled and done very poorly um both this this scene and um the uh, the auctioning scene from earlier, but I think you know, given that this is in the hands of a capable writer, it's it's prevented from doing so. But it, I, I think we have to. I mean, you have to see that there is a very very delicate balance that's going on in the tone uh, that's being used in these in these two sections. And and just the last thing I would like to say on this section is that the we get a return not not explicitly, but of the tower motif from the crying of Lot Forty Nine with DL wondering as she's standing there looking in the mirror am I actually even here have I mm-hmm. gone crazy is that yeah. what's happening mm-hmm. that makes as much sense to her as uh, her having imagined the last like year of her life or however long it's supposed to have been makes as much sense as the idea that she's actually in this horrible position and I think that you say it's balanced I'm not sure this section's too balanced Cody <laughs> it makes me feel pretty bad <laughs> That's yeah, yeah. That's true. There's this, a lot yeah. of tragedy in like the thirty pages or whatever that this that this covers. 
yeah i i i'm glad somebody else brought that up so that i wasn't the only person who noticed that but it, it isn't even necessarily just the tower motif which you've nailed on the head but it it is this repeating i talked about it a lot when we were covering crying about 49 obviously but it's this repeating idea that oftentimes when these these women that pinch on rights do what they think is supposed to give them agency or control actually leads them in a in a, a opposite direction or they they start to kind of press at the boundaries of of what they're allowed supposed to have access to i guess is how i'll put it um and they start to to run into not exactly the capital t they but a different capital t they that controls other aspects of of their life like it's a more personalized idea of the kind of outside controlling force which is directly contrasted by the next section where you have uh the insurance investigation mm-hmm. um where that is very much a a a traditional pinchonian capital t day i think i think there's something interesting to be mined out of the way that um Pinchon writes women who come up against counter count you know opposing counter forces and and what happens to men or the forces that men encounter that's something that I've, i as we've gone through this podcast have been thinking a lot about since we did crying of love for united i found it very interesting to to see that it comes up here again so that does of course bring us to uh mr size 2000 i believe is or 20,000 20,000 20, I think yeah. yeah which is I, I that was such a great <laughs> that was such a great joke um in in contrast to the corniest joke of all time that Takeshi makes as he's he's standing at the edge of the the footprint oh um, god yeah yeah it's going to take a while to get to the bottom of this it, uh, and the fact that Pinchon writes in that he pa- pauses before the punchline yeah of, like it's going to takes a deep breath gonna, in it's going to take a while to get to the bottom of this one. It's just so, it's so corny, but I loved it. Um, but what did we think about, what did we think about this, this section of the footprint in the sand? Like I said in the intro, I do think it does kind of read like the book is like resetting itself a little bit right here. Um, where, do you, you want to talk a bit about that? Like rumor with pinch on just for yeah, I context mean, for the audience. I, I do know that I've seen I've seen press clippings uh, and, and I've seen it referenced on the Pension subreddit that there are rumors going around that Pension was working on some type of Godzilla book or Mothra book, which would have followed a um, an insurance adjuster trying to figure out the insurance, um, like the insurance claims and the amount of damage done by a Godzilla-like creature. Um, which those rumors were before Vineland, obviously, and that that book does seem to have been, have been folded into this book or something. Because um, you know, I mean, there is a mention of the of the um, of the airplane um, disappearances in this section, um, and it does seem to kind of this section does seem to kind of like place this book in a kind of more sci-fi world or a world with um, kind of more like inexplicable uh, cosmic horror elements or something. Um, 
you know, it, it's not it's this section of the like the the preceding sections of this book seem to almost take place in reality. There's nothing. I mean, besides the even I mean, even the the airplane disappearances are are portrayed or are shown to like are portrayed as kind of everyday and normal. And I mean, that kind of stuff could technically I mean, I guess two airplanes connecting in mid flight is not super viable um, or something that happens, you know, obviously in, in the real world. I mean, there are like the military planes that refuel in flight and stuff. But that's not like people are not passing between the two of them. Um. <laughs> But yeah, I think you get what I'm saying with that, with like mm-hmm. with the mm-hmm. sci-fi elements, uh, especially in this section where um, we seem to kind of enter this this a new a different kind of world with different rules than uh, the real world, uh, which I really love. Um, and yeah, I don't know where those rumors about Pynchon writing a Godzilla novel come from. I imagine it's probably. People were probably in letters or verbally asking Pynchon what he was working on, and um, Pynchon could have mentioned that. Um, I do know that some of his letters are available to the public at places like the Harry Ransom Center in Austin. Um, so maybe it's from that. Um, but I don't, you know, it's that book, a book by Pynchon about an insurance adjuster following in the wake of Godzilla. Um, it's a super interesting concept. You know, it's 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 a really funny concept. Uh, and it's it's one thing I love about it is that, you know, we don't um in the real world, if there were Godzillas and King Kongs and Mothras and all this stuff, that would be an aspect of um their appearances and their destruction is is you know, people claiming insurance on it, although I, I imagine it would probably be filed under acts of God or something. Um, it yeah. does bring to mind. Force majeure. Yeah. Yeah. It does bring to mind um, the impact of like climate change on insurance prices. Uh, I do know I've seen stuff online. I don't own my own home, but I have seen stuff online about, you know, home insurance prices going up a lot. And um, I think, I think we all get where I'm get, going with that. Mm-hmm. Where climate change is kind of this like impossible to wrap your head around hyper objects um in terms of its effects on the environment and um stuff like flooding and, and the weather uh which has affected insurance already and will probably continue to affect insurance prices um but i just find the whole concept really interesting really fun to think about and yeah like i said i mean it does kind of like you know this this is pretty random i mean it's not you don't like you don't finish the last section and then you're like, oh yeah, Godzilla's about to appear. Um, <laughs> Not, <laughs> yeah, it's it's out of left field. It's it's pretty random. I love it for that and um, partially because of that. But mm-hmm. um, I, I this is this section. Um, I don't really necessarily love the whole sex scene between Takeshi and DL. I mean, it's it's portrayed as pretty sleazy and. It's a lot of innuendos and stuff, as Cody po- points out in our show and in the in the notes for this episode. But um, the the first few pages of the section are some of my favorite pages in the book. Um, you know the the imagery of Takeshi standing in this massive like paw print and making all these jokes and popping amphetamines, drinking coffee, and kind of shooting the shit with his fellow employees. It's just it's just perfect in my opinion. It is. I so I, I'm I agree with you hundred percent. I, I think that it's the 
sort of whiplash of it is is part of what makes it work and part of what I love about it. And I, I part of what I love about just Pinchon in general is his ability to seamlessly blend um, fantasy and sci-fi elements into his work and into in a way that it doesn't feel like it's it's being like shoehorned in or it's being made too big of a deal of. It's it's just always kind of this subtle insert that just makes it work enough to keep it in there. Um, and yeah, the, the idea of Takeshi standing at the, the edge of this uh, print so large that you can't see to the other side of it while he's taking speed, basically, and caffeine, it, it gives it this weird, like, X-Files meets, um, I don't know what, you know, what drug movie I can think of that there, that meth was uh, used in that sense, but you know what I mean? Like it, it, it blends it in that set in such a way like that. But I also, as far as the rumor of him having a story like this, I would not be surprised if that was something he said as a joke that got picked up and turned <laughs> into something of like, you know, Oh, this is, this is totally going to be his next book. And then he was like, you know what though? Like there's something there. I don't think, that it could be a book length story. I think it it could maybe be like a novella, but for him to just fold it into this in, in this part here, and then a little bit later on uh, in the chapter, I think works out pretty well. But I mean, it's it, given that he also made a fake book title for what was it? The John Larroquette show in the mid nineties. Um, it wouldn't surprise me that he has this sort of bank of ideas in his head that when people ask him, you know, what are you working on? He can just pull something out to keep them occupied and, and not bother him anymore. So that's obviously conjecture. I have no way of proving any of that, but, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised at all if that was just, you know, something he said to get people spinning their wheels on something. Yeah. I didn't think of that, but it, it definitely could be like some kind of meta joke. Um, you know, like an it's inside a- joke between him and his fans. Yeah, it's a it's a great concept, and it, like it absolutely is hilarious to think about. But um, yeah, I don't think it could hold its own as a, as a book entirely, unless it was just like a smaller part of a larger book. But also to touch on what Luke was saying about the the uh, the sort of uh, meta monster of something like global warming, I think that also ties into a lot of his his kind of Lovecraftian um, horror that he builds in to an environmental sense, where the where the the environment of an area or the earth as a general concept is sort of turned into a monster or aspects of it are turned into a monster, which plays uh, hugely like in, in Mason and Dixon and against the day. And, and I think in parts of this book as well, um, you know, he certainly has a, a um, what's the word I'm looking for. I think he's drawn a lot of inspiration from, from Lovecraft in that sense of, of turning a, uh, an unknowable thing into a monster that, creates a sort of tension and atmosphere throughout the story. Yeah, I, I've always seen the Godzilla inclusion here as actually a reference to capitalism gone amok, which I'll explain in a second. But um, it, to to build off of the the rumors about Pinchon's, you know, unwritten book about an insurance adjuster related to Godzilla, if you're looking for something similar to that, watch the movie Shin Godzilla from 2017, I think is when that came out. Um it is the most modern Godzilla movie made in Japan. It's not it's not one of the American movies that have come out in the past like five years. And it is specifically about 
what would happen if Godzilla did, you know, come into the real world that we live in now? Like, how would bureaucracy respond to a monster attack? And it is a inherently comedic film because it is basically these completely incompetent bureaucrats trying to do the same thing that they would do (laughs) with like a construction project from a from a state sponsored perspective to a giant lizard that is actively rampaging through tokyo um and it's it's so funny and it's a great satire of like the failings of of modern government and all of that um so obviously not quite the same thing as an insurance adjuster but certainly in the same spirit as that so if if none of our uh listeners have seen shin godzilla please go see it it's it's excellent um well worth your time the the thing that i've always and this is again another one of those moments where this could be just me you know completely talking out my ass about it but as i was reading through it this time what kind of struck me is like okay what why would godzilla be included here why that specifically because it's a very like even though it doesn't ever use the word right it's very obvious what pinchon is making an allusion towards um so what did, what did Godzilla represent? If you go back to the original sort of production of the of the film and where that came from, Godzilla was certainly an allegory for the nuclear bomb, which mm-hmm. in and of itself was an allegory for sort of the military industrial complex running amok to the point where it reached sort of the the end game, so to speak, of of what that industry could could be. This idea of nuclear power nuclear weapons what where do you go from there and in reality there is nowhere to go from there there's larger nuclear weapons but that's that's basically it and so godzilla is seen as sort of the destructive um end point of something like the military industrial complex in that original context what struck me this time going through it as a significantly older person than the last time i read this book was that it is specifically in reference to a company that seems to have hit the endpoint of capitalist innovation and corporatism run amok in that there is Chipco City where it is such a large campus that this company owns and operates that it is its own city that has a rail line stop mm-hmm. that that presumably workers not only get off to work at but probably also live there as well. So it Pinchon deliberately is giving us this company that has reached the upper echelon of what a company can be, which in that phrasing of 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 Chipco City certainly recalls a lot of thoughts about like company towns that paid their employees in script and you know you were expected to live there and work there and bring your family there and also, you know, pay in company cash and all of that. Not only that, but we also get the idea that this company has purchased a insurance policy for something like Godzilla just before this happens. So that that if you're going to take like a conspiracy element to it could be pointing to the fact that Chipko just like the atomic bomb tests in the original films created the monster that eventually stepped on its building and bought the insurance policy ahead of time to save itself the money of losing the facility that was closest to wherever this this creature was was made. So what it is that I kind of, and again, this could be a crazy conspiracy corner moment, what I see coming out of this is Pinchon saying that 
it isn't just the military industrial complex anymore that can lead to such destruction. It is now also corporatism that can get there too without the aid of the military industrial complex. If Chipko did indeed create the Godzilla that stepped on it, and that's how they had the forewarning that they would need the insurance rider, then they are capable of something just as largely destructive as something that used to be only reserved for military power. And that is certainly a element of this novel that would jive with the corporatism and mass consumer expansion of the 1980s that is certainly present throughout the entirety of this book and that we have talked about over the course of, you know, all of the episodes that we have recorded on this book. So that's really where I personally land on this inclusion there. And, um, you know, I don't know if everyone is going to agree with me on that or if I'm if that's if that's crazy. But that's really where I came away from this reading on with with its inclusion here in chapter nine. I absolutely that tracks 100 percent for me. I think y'all are barking at nothing. Seems like nonsense to me. Why would Chipko have a helicopter with a model of Godzilla's foot on the bottom? If they if they had anything to do with it, huh? Why would they why would they put that target on their back? It certainly couldn't be an indication of their sheer uh bravery. Let's call it that. <laughs> Definitely no. It's uh, they are they are completely innocent of any wrongdoing here. You're, you're right. You're right. I I apologize. I would never imply something to say that Chipko is is nothing but a a good, honorable, upstanding member of its community. Chipko is excellent. <laughs> I think we found out who's who who's also sponsoring Will. This is a big aspect wasn't paying enough money for him. I need to seek out another one. Yep. So I will. I will say uh, to back up just a little bit in terms of the book. Right around the time we switched to, to Takeshi, and I think that uh, the sheer quantity of dextroamphetamine, and later on in the chapters, or later on in the chapter, and I think this is relevant because obviously he's telling the story afterwards to Prairie. He's taking like a weird mix of meth and barbiturates and random other tranquilizers from from the point where Takeshi's story takes over I really do have a very hard time piecing together any of these events in in a, in any coherent fashion um, and that at the beginning of this episode I was very tempted to say that this is one of my favorite sections of the book but I realized that it's kind of hard to say that it's one of my favorite sections when it's one of the only parts that I can confidently say I don't understand very much of. I don't know what's going on in this chapter um, to, to any great detail. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that Takeshi is like so loaded. <laughs> like it's, yeah. it's inconceivable how loaded he is. I mean, he, he's on a, he's on so much dextroamphetamine that he's standing around doing the middle in the middle of his job, you know, surveying this giant footprint. And he's like, ah, screw it. Let's just get on the helicopter and get out of here. I'm done. Like, it takes... Imagine how much meth you have to be on. Because it, technically it's not meth. But imagine how much meth you would have to be on to not want to do anything. That's how much yeah. you've done. Yeah. 
No, and you're right about the uh, the sort of um, I don't want to say hallucinatory, but it there there is a I had a really difficult time also kind of keeping up with what was happening and when throughout these chapters, and I do think that's on purpose. Um, but yeah, it is very much a, a sort of whirlwind of events and shifting time frames and and POVs and whatnot. So it it is a lot to keep up with. Yeah, and I think, well, I also think to to kind of reinforce that point, I think it's telling that this is one of the sequences from the book that gets talked about more than any other. Like, oh, for sure. When it, when it comes just to sort of random discussions about Vineland that you'll see pop up on the Reddit or, you know, on other communities sort of that that Pinchon is a, is a frequent flyer in, um, this this Godzilla King of Monsters section seems to be one of the things that people talk about the, the most often. So there's a lot of intrigue around it as a whole i think that another way to look at it too would be more so when he gets on the helicopter and starts reminiscing about the the himalayan job that they're talking about um and where he has that line i'm actually gonna try and find it because i think that will help reinforce my point here um, the quote I was looking for is from 146, where uh, it's the same as the Himalayan incident. They looked at each other, the two weary old hands, feeling as usual like jungle indigenous going in after a firefight to scavenge brass for pennies a ton. Far above them, some planet-wide struggle had been going on for years, power accumulating, lives worth less, personnel changing, still governed by the rules of gang war and blood feud, though it had far outgrown them in scale. Chipko was up in it up to their eyeballs and it looked like the professor might have been fading some of the action. Nothing surprised either Takeshi or Minoru by now about the game, in which the everyday pieces were pirate ships of the stratosphere and Himalayas were held for ransom. I think that quote kind of, A, sums up some of what Vineland represents as a book, but also B, also reinforces what the whole thing with, with the Godzilla footprint is and why I think so many people are trying to figure out the meaning behind it obviously i've just expounded my theory but it seems as though vineland you know whereas in a lot of other pinchon books take that capital t they and the counterforce and all of that and kind of give you a bit more of a window into it vineland really seems like one of pinchon's books that operates from the lowest possible level of things happening to people and they don't really understand why or really where it's coming from i mean when you when you think of the introduction with zoid all of the action that is affecting his life is happening off screen so to speak and he's just kind of trying to navigate his way through that and then when you move into the next phase with the backstory of of frenesi and all the stuff now with dl like the motivations for a lot of that stuff we don't we don't know the reader hasn't been told at this point in the story and so it's this effect of like Something is causing all of that. Something is causing Frenessy to be, you know, very much opposite of the person people think she is. Something is causing, you know, Ralph Wavone and DL to to constantly run into each other. Something is causing Brock to constantly not be ensnared in these traps and to be the the roadrunner he is. And then you have this scene where this person has been called in to figure out what has happened with with like literally what seems to be a creation of you know a, a corporatocracy that has the possibility to destroy you know a whole city looking at it from a magnified perspective of like the godzilla movies 
and there's no explanation there either. And then you have this this brief aside where you get the perspective of somebody who's been on the ground floor of all of that. Like, I know there's something bigger going on here. And I've been, you know, I've seen maybe some windows into it, but I don't know what any of it means. I know that probably these people are involved in it, but there's not going to be any answer as to why these things are happening. There's not going to be any answer to what the powers that be are actually attempting to do. And I think that by using such an extreme example of like this Godzilla footprint and especially coming off the back of like how quickly the narrative shifts to go back to what Luke said when we started talking about this, this portion, I think Pinchon is transposing that feeling directly on the reader of if the reader was in this position they would feel the exact same way as this character and as how they currently are feeling reading it. This is clearly important. It clearly indicates a lot of things about, you know, power, who really controls power, you know, who who is really in charge of things behind the scenes, and especially that idea of, like, where Himalayan mountains are for ransom. Like, it gets to the idea of how much power is really at stake there. But there's no answer. There's no answer for the character. There's no answer for the reader. They just have to accept that there are things they don't have access to and the powerlessness mm-hmm. that, that comes with that. And I think that a, par- a portion of, of what Pinchon is trying to do with Vineland is expound upon that very idea of, you know, rather than us talking about this, this, this mystical rocket that eventually the character is going to come in contact with and what that might represent and all of the things that gravity's rainbow really gets into. This is about just the experience of someone coming close to being in contact with all of that, but with none of the answers to any of it. Um, and I, I think that this is just sort of a microcosm of that, of that concept. I, yeah. I, I can even take your, your conspiratorial reading even further. I think that there's a, a lot to be read into that section on terror management. Because uh, one other facet of Godzilla that you left out, because I, I imagine, because it's pretty dicey to talk about, is um, Japanese nationalism. And mm-hmm. none of us know enough to talk about that. No, I sure don't. I sure don't. Yeah, but it's, it's, a, it's a big old deal. It's a big old deal. Go educate yourself if you're not aware of the implications of Japanese nationalism in Godzilla. But this is a company that is named after an American, you know, term, you know, chip for computer silicon wafer. And it's this company that has, you know, they've implied that maybe they created this giant, uh, giant demon monster. Maybe they just happened to find Godzilla under the water in time to get that, you know, what do they call it? Floater on top of their contract. But maybe they just, crushed the building in such a conspicuous way that nobody would assume that it was a fraud like regardless of whether there was an a a giant amphibious dinosaur of sorts that they might have just written off this building as like some stupid like extreme mockery of you know businesses burning down their headquarters and stuff to recoup Mm -hmm. loss and it is, again, we don't know enough to talk authoritatively about any of this, but it's all there. It's all there. Yeah. And well, if you're, I was just going to bring it back to the, the V2 in Gravity's Rainbow. 
yeah. so much of that is about terror management and so much of the atomic bomb is about terror management and that's what this reads us to me well especially speaking on the terror management specifically like when they are talking about chipco city a little bit later they do make a reference to the idea that the only reason that these buildings have roofs is so that nobody can see the horrors that they're perpetrating inside like there is a very there is a very specific call out that while this company on the outside is making silicone computer chips they are clearly up to other stuff so the idea that they would destroy the building because of maybe something else that was inside of it and this is a way that they're using uh as a way to cover it up is is uh, you know certainly there is certainly something to be drawn out of that especially and like i'm reminded of the chernobyl nuclear disaster in that there were firemen who showed up to that not knowing what it was and were just picking up pieces of graphite that were moments ago inside a nuclear reactor core to the fact that these insurance adjusters or or techs as takeshi refers to them as some of them are wandering around with radiation meters and when the helicopter initially shows up it mentions that several of them just point a radiation meter at it to like measure what it might be and then of course you have this other person as luke mentioned picking up something random in the rubble and they have them having this conversation about it so there is absolutely enough of a reading there to 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 go from a terror management perspective to look at there could have been something else they were doing in this in this building and needed to get rid of it and perhaps doing this was going to be easier to to explain or lock up something bureaucratically forever so that it never came out that that is absolutely a, a valid way to look at it too will well and you you've brought to my mind the elephant's foot the the the, the physical mass of radioactive material that basically Orium. into yeah yeah a mass in the middle of the chernobyl power plant and i think this kind of goes into the whole like eastern european the eastern Bloc thing that, that luke was pointing to these are the all these ideas link link back together how do people not like this book I don't, I, I don't, I don't know. Like, I'm so <laughs> entrenched in this conversation and I'm thinking like, what, how is this book so overlooked and dunked on all the time? Like there's so much happening in here. I love it. Uh, yeah. Well, it, did, I, it did take four of us to piece that all together. But still like, that's the thing It's like, if, if, if a larger conversation can be had and, and if just honestly, just between the two of you, extrapolating out what you just did uh it like though when you think of you know having a larger scale conversation and the amount of of things that can be pulled from this text I, it blows my mind that this book does not get the love that it deserves yeah no i, I agree completely and i think that you know i, I think not to claim that like mapping the zone a podcast that has existed since march of 2023 <laughs> is is going to prove to be some kind of amazing literary achievement for the world. But like, you know, without a concerted effort to really dig into the material and talk about it, there is, you end up with this, this reality where people like read through a Godzilla section like that and then go, well, I don't know what any of that means. I'll ask other people. And then everyone else just went, huh, I don't know what that means either. And then just kind of moved on. 
And I think part of that is the fact that this book is certainly written from a different perspective. Like I, I just talked about a little bit ago from a standpoint of you're given less access to the man behind the curtain, so to speak, with this book. Uh, events happen and characters experience that event. And then it is left up to both the characters and the reader to figure out what that what that may mean. Whereas that doesn't exist quite so much in some of the other books that 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 Pinchon went into. He's 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 focusing more on the human experience of navigating uh, through a world that I believe it was Will who who extrapolated at the end of Crying of Love 49, where God is dead and the other masters that have taken his place are unwilling to give divine revelation to the citizenry. Like it, it, it is, it is certainly a unique book in, in Pinchon's canon from that perspective. And that it, I think has the, the least amount of access to, to what's going on behind the scenes of anything. I, I, I can't put it any better than that. Yeah. So, if there's <laughs> nothing else to talk about with Godzilla, um... <laughs> I mean, we've only just begun to scratch the surface, I think. Apparently. <laughs> um, if, we, if no one else has anything else that they want to, to add, that brings us, of course, to Takeshi's encounter with Brock Fond and then the subsequent encounter with DL. Um, yeah, I'm glad that you had the note in here cody about the description of the doors um it's, I'm, I'm glad i'm not the only one that felt that way <laughs> it's it, i remember when i first i i listened to this chapter on audiobook uh for context for the listener and to hear the description of takeshi unlocking a door described that way after he just said to deal maybe we should skip over the sex part was both hilarious and also revolting because it, it's it's yeah. very clear that Takeshi was making a joke of like maybe we should skip over the part where the two of us slept together by accident and then after DL says no no we can we can we can go through it he was in he his immediate response to that was why don't i describe the action of unlocking a door in the most grotesque way. way i possibly can yeah it's it's something else. I do also want to say, uh, just to back up on on what you said a minute ago, just to clarify, and, and Kate, I think you'll need to speak to this uh, because you're the one that experienced. You really only listened to the first half of the of the chapter. Oh, on the audiobook. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah, think yeah. maybe for anybody else who might have stumbled on that audiobook on Spotify, it may be important to point that out to them. Good point. Yeah. So uh, the the audiobook for Vineland seems to have been recorded uh amateurly amateurishly very fitting um, for this book i think yeah in that th the the person narrating it at one point i hear him set a pen down on his desk um you know and there are just other it, it still sounds good like it, the audio is good the narration itself is good but it's it's obvious that he wasn't like you know being paid by little brown to to record this or anything like that um it would appear as though for whatever reason the decision was made to split the chapters into multiple numbers. So chapter nine in the audiobook is not just chapter nine. It's nine and 10. It so might be it, and 11 too. It, 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 it the, honestly might be. Yeah. Yeah. That happens with a few of the chapters in this book. It's really annoying. So, you know, 
I wanted to listen to the audiobook as an experiment and what this would sound like as an audiobook. Because as I mentioned in, I think, episode two of this of this season, I don't typically listen to Pinchon on audio because I don't think it always translates well. But yeah, if you're if you're listening to the Vineland audiobook, maybe just have a physical copy around so that you know where those are actually ending. Because chapter nine in the audiobook ends where this podcast episode is going to end, not at the actual end of chapter nine. It's very strange. That being said, yeah, the, I I didn't think I could I could be more uncomfortable with hotel doors than I than I was reading this. I thank thank Christ we were not reading this when I was living in a hotel for a couple of weeks before Ooh, I moved. Yeah, because uncomfortable. Every time I would have come back to that hotel from work and put the key card in, I would have just immediately just gotten the shivers. Yeah, it's. Mm. <laughs> To go back a little bit, how do you all how do you all think that Brock knew that it was a setup with TL? It, it, so I don't. My only guess is that, given the fact that the the sort of brothel, I guess is the term I'll use, seems very hastily set up, and with no other, you know, end point than DL being there. It's entirely possible that the the circumstances in which the key to the brothel was given to Brock were equally set upish seeming, <laughs> where just somebody yeah. maybe the like the way they gave him the key code or the key card, just it was just so out of left field and not connected to anything that he just would have maybe inherently thought that it was a setup, because um, I I listened to the first half of this chapter twice. And the first time going through it, I didn't really make much of the description of of the brothel. But the second time through, it did seem to me like it wasn't actually like a working brothel where you could go and see one of many prostitutes that, that would be working there. It seemed more like they had just kind of set up this environment for just Brock to eventually reach DL and then and then have him, you know, get attacked. So I, that that's my guess, but I don't I don't think there's any any way to say one way or the other how uh my personal interpretation is i mean the yakuza who i i'm under the impression that more or less pretty much every criminal um element of of japan like every 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 aspect of criminal life in japan is is done through the yakuza uh, i want to say since chapter eight the yakuza are shown to be are are stated to be um colluding with and in communication with like the US government. Um so I do think that it's possible that Brock Vaughn had like a Yakuza contact who tipped him off. Um that which also kind of brings to mind I recently read Samuel R. Delaney's uh, book of short stories Drift Class and he had an he has an award winning novelette in that in that book called time considered as a helix of semi-precious stones which i actually didn't really enjoy that much uh, as a short story what a but title story yeah it is a real it's a it, delaney's <laughs> amazing at titles um his titles are often better than the actual stories but um that story does does depict a criminal who rises in the criminal underworld and kind of has a nemesis on the police side and the ending of of that short story depicts them having a conversation where they talk about how they're going to be around each other a lot more because 
they both risen so high in their respective fields that they're going to be at a lot of the same parties and a lot of this, they're going to know a lot of the same people and stuff. Um, which does seem to kind of be more than kind of, it does, you know, pinch in with the capital T they, um, you know, is, is pretty interested in high level collusion, high level, um, you know, collaborations that, you know, to the, to the, the everyman um, may seem impossible or not realistic, but I do think that that's an aspect of, of this is that Brock has risen so high in the federal government um, and the federal government, partially because of world war two and our um, occupation of Japan has a lot of contacts in the criminal underworld of Japan. And I do think that that that's my personal interpretation is that somebody from the Yakuza who Brock knows and is possible the person from the Yakuza is possibly an informant or some type of go-between or double, triple, quadruple agent or something uh, tips Brock off. Um, because otherwise, it just, like, you know, there's no way, there's not really, with that not being, if that were not true, and I do think it's there in the subtext, but if that were not true, I don't see any other possible way that Brock would have known what was coming. Um, on a so, different note, on a different note, I do really like that Takeshi is shown, is depicted as being similar looking to Brock Vaughn's. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just kind of, I don't, I don't know if it's like a vibe thing. I don't know if they literally look, look similar, if they just kind of carry themselves similarly. Um, I like that little detail. I, I see where you're coming from with your, your assessment of, of how Brock would have known. Um, I think someone in his position could rise high enough in the rankings to where they have almost a sense of omniscience, just given the resources that are available to them and the the connections that they would have that they would, you know, kind of be able to almost know whatever's going on at any given time in any given place. Mm -hmm. Um, So I, yeah, I absolutely think that's probably what it is here. Yeah. That's a really good call out loop. So I beg to differ with all of you. Oh, I don't, this, I, I don't think this rises to the level of a crazy conspiracy corner that is neither a corner conspiratorial or crazy. I think it's just a... It's a corner. You'll it's see. Just a, it's just a corner. It's just a corner. <laughs> um, so I'm just going to read... Basically, the only direct information we have about these decisions... Um, I'm reading an ebook. Apologies, everyone trying to follow along. I cannot give you a page number. One of them was Brock Vond, who was saying, We need time to round up some troops. Don't want them to know we found anything out, hmm? They'll have their checkpoints between here and there, so what we need now is a plausible head and shoulders in the back seat. Who knows, Roscoe? You may even have to go in there. So I, I read that as an indication, alongside the general themes of kind of haplessness in the book, as well as, you know, the framing of the framing by Wayvone as he is the roadrunner. The roadrunner is not a genius who sees what the coyote is planning. The roadrunner just doesn't fall for the trap. The ro- <laughs> That's runner, true. Yeah. The, the roadrunner just goes in a different direction. I see this as maybe indicating that Brockvond, and I, this is this is a suggestion entirely based on no alternatives, because there, there's no other. There's no other instance of anything happening in the story so maybe if i knew more about 19 i guess this would be set in the 70s uh japan I think 78 is the year that they say 78 okay. yeah there you go yep. that's right yeah. uh 
you know, I don't. Maybe if you're an expert on Japanese history in the late seventies, you will know that there's this some there that there's something to that that's a reference to. But maybe Brock Vond is, you know, just there working outside of his position in the FBI as like a fixer for the Japanese government, you know, re regarding uh, Chipko, you know, or, or whatever else. To me, it seems more like they're concerned about being pulled over wherever they're going and having it found out that Brock is not where he's supposed to be more than actually thinking that the brothel isn't where he's he wants to go. It seems more like he has a conflict of interests. So what you're saying, to make my second Seinfeld reference of the evening, is that <laughs> Brock Vond is George Costanza doing the opposite. Oh my god. <laughs> I, I, I actually am not, but I wish I had. Can we also talk about how how absurd the name Chipko is? Just as a... It's, as a, it's as a delightfully absurd. <laughs> it's a, just like DL's character seems to be out of a, of a, you know, a William Gibson book, so too does Chipko seem like it would be in like a Neil Stevenson or William Gibson novel. I was going to say, yeah, it definitely feels like Stevenson kind of. <laughs> Nothing against Stevenson. I like Stevenson, but yeah, that definitely has, it has that feel to it. Yeah, yeah, it's more Stevenson than Gibson for me, but yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's definitely that cyberpunk very post-ironic kind of symbolism. Mm -hmm. So do we do we have anything else we want to add to the first half of chapter nine? That kind of brings us to the end because they have their their little ill-fated menage a trois and then uh, DL runs away and Ralph Wavon makes the comparison to, to Brock Vaughn being the roadrunner. I mean, we we probably need to at least discuss a little bit of of the actual uh, encounter between DL and and Takeshi and and how it's portrayed. Do we? <laughs> um, was it Luke or Will that, or at the beginning, had mentioned um the the sort of um how oh, I forget the word that was used. Somebody brought it up earlier and had a good word for the 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 tryst that they and now my brain is just completely blanked out on me. I don't know. Anyways, um it 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 reminded me a lot of of um Lot 49 with um Oedipa and um God my brain is shutting down way earlier than Metzger. usual tonight. Metzger, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. Um in it just yeah i don't know reading it was was a lot of things mm -hmm. yeah i mean i will say that like it is there is one line in it that i from an artistic perspective appreciated where uh when he looks at dl's face after it's over and notices that the contacts have been removed like pinchon describes the color changes almost as if something had drained out of her eyes like i there's some still some impressive writing and oh for in, sure in, yeah in all of the sordidness of the affair but um yeah it's it 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 is it's a, it's a brief scene that makes me want to take a shower afterwards it's it thank you it's it's <laughs> uncomfortable yeah I think is yeah that's the best way I can phrase it <laughs> uh, uncomfy 
Yeah, I, you know, I can make I can pull us a little bit away from the the unpleasantness by talking about very much on the nose symbolism of having the the fact that DL was, as Prairie puts it, someone else's contacts, or as she later says, someone else's, or as uh, she had come to believe that the lens had take, been taken from the eyes of a dead person. She's literally trying to look through someone else's perspective, mm-hmm. and she can't recognize uh, Takeshi for who he is. There's also there's also the excellent joke of soft off, yes, instead of instead of hard on. Um, That's definitely six in the mind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of prose to love, but there's not a lot of like actual events that happens here that is not. um, I I mean I don't think we can really like we can talk about it obviously, but I don't think we're going to expose anything. I think if you read it, no. you get what's going on. It's just mm-hmm. heavy and we don't really want to go there. It's, it is a bit on the nose that it's the hour of the cock though. In more ways than one. <laughs> Another real corny joke from this chapter. It turns out that Takeshi, a bit character only does bits. you know there's symmetry between uh, style and substance so that that uh that brings us into to funny parts anything that wasn't discussed already Um, i already brought it i already brought it up but i i do love the the fact in the opening of the chapter that um dl is is being served food that was taken from uh, it's four rubber scampi that were uh, from a joke yeah. store. Mm-hmm. It's played pretty straight, not really emphasized. Um, but you know, Ralph does say, "How can you eat that?" Um, I find that. I mean, I don't. If I wrote that, I, I would be cackling to myself constantly and be like, "Yo, do you remember that part of the book where I wrote that?" Like, <laughs> I, I think it's really funny that so that you know, like a waiter or a chef like ran out of whatever. I think it's. I think it's shrimp or whatever, and yeah, went mm-hmm. to a joke store and served some plastic facsimile of, of the food. Um, and, I and actually I put that... sauce on it too. Yeah, like, not just not just a little bit either. It's described as yeah. like a heaping amount of sauce to cover yeah. the fact that it's obviously not real. Uh, for me, it's it's a little thing, but it's it's the there. There's a certain um, tragic comedy in the in the minor key disco music that's mentioned on page 147 disco music coming out of the club doors is all in minor keys tonight the beat slower undanceable <laughs> just i, I music, musically knowing the shift from major to minor <laughs> and the impact that it has on a lot of forms of music especially disco is fucking hilarious yeah yeah that that would be one of one of mine that that you stole cody um I would say another funny part is is the concept that Chipko has helicopters that have a bartending staff on them, <laughs> um, but that they only serve beer. So why why you would need like a mixologist on board? It's just a, one of those unnecessary corporate things. Where it's just like, yeah, we could do that. Why not? Who cares? Yeah, and just because we can doesn't mean we should. But we're gonna. They drink one beer, and then when they go get when they go to go get another one, the bar's already closed because the helicopter's <laughs> gonna land. <laughs> Just uh, lit- literally corporate spending gone amok. 
Any other funny parts from anybody? I think one of you mentioned it, but I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm having trouble picking anything that is purely comedic in this chapter. Um, mm-hmm. Or this half of a chapter. I'm going to just point back to the, the clearly reptilian the professor had summed up, or possibly the work of a disgruntled environmentalist. Just <laughs> very funny. It's actually something that um, I know I probably bring up Michael S. Judge too much, but he gets into. I want to, I don't, I can't remember if it's in a recent episode or not. I've been re re listening to all of his stuff on Gravity's Rainbow just because I have so much time at work to kill. Um, but he gets into pensions, possible ties to the environmental movement and especially the, um, the, uh, like the more perhaps I mean, violent may not be the right word. Uh, the more, um, I guess maybe violent. I mean, in terms of from the from a state, from a federal perspective, aspects of the environmental movement in terms of you know like blowing up bridges or factories or stuff like that, um, which I don't know. He doesn't. He himself isn't sure that there's an actual connection there. He's just heard rumors about it. Um, but yeah, and I mean there is an environmental streak to pension. I think I went over that a little bit in Crying About Forty Nine. Um. But that definitely does seem to be an aspect of his writing and, and who he is as a person. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. So what about quotes? Cody traditionally goes first, but I'm going to make Will go first because ah. we've been stealing a lot of stuff from him lately. Yeah. The last couple episodes, I feel like someone's stolen something from Will. So um, my, 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 my favorite quote, I'm going to go with, um, again, can't give you any pages, sorry. But uh, it's when, it, it is after the auction, it is uh, Wavon speaking to DL. Ufa mi tratta pecha, Jesus, a in faccia. My dear Miss Chastain, who'd ever try to run a lady such as you with your independent ideas, plus all those lethal talents? Do I look that stupid? Well, the problem, of course, was that he didn't look quite stupid enough. Had a certain luminous shade of skin, not balanced out the wrong length sideburns. This tightly rationed smile, not likewise made up for the non er, to the no eye contact eyes. Why she most likely passed on the venture and had to arrive at other less hopeful arrangements. But it came about after a night and a day of jackhammer sex, amphetamines, champagne, and chaliapine steaks, ordered up from Le Saison, that she was sped by Lincoln limo, semen drying on her stockings, and one earring lost forever through rain glare and wet streets to the notorious Haru no Dupato, or department store of spring, installed in a room of her own, and handed a large clutch purse stuffed full of yen for transitional expenses till she went off officially on the until she went officially on the payroll. And uh it's a it's a pretty awful uh scene. But I think that it it does give you exactly kinda like who Ralph Waybone is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, he, he, he seems like a caricature up until that moment, I yep. would say. Yeah. Uh, Luke, what would be your quote? So I had a different one, but I couldn't find it today, but I have, I have it ready. It's from 133. Uh, the car radio tuned to KFWB was playing the doors. People are strange when you're a stranger as she injected herself into the slow lane of the eastbound freeway and settled in, hating to let any of it go, banning the dinosaurs, the Palm Springs turnoff, Indio, across the Mohawk, 
Mojave. It's very redreamed and colors pale but intense with unnaturally fine sand blowing in plumes across the sun, baby blue shadows in the folds of the dunes, a pinkish sky, holding on, letting go, redreaming each night stop the less easterly places she'd been in all day, coming slowly unstuck, leaving for the United States, trying not to get emotional, but still hanging on the rearview mirror's single tail of recedings and vanishing points as we hang on looks our lovers give. Um, that's up there for some of the best pros in the whole book. Um, especially the, the baby blue shadows and the folds of the dunes. Um, I've never heard shadows described as baby blue, but I, I do kind of understand what that's getting at in terms of the way that shadows can can affect the colors in deserts. Um, but yeah, that's probably my favorite prose section from this from this first half of the chapter. It's an excellent one. Uh, my quote comes from the same page, Luke. Um, it says, Columbus must have promised a life that some residual self somewhere in the stifling dark had always wanted. Superman could change back into Clark Kent, she had once confided to Furnessy. Don't underestimate it. Working at the Daily Planet was the Man of Steel's Hawaiian vacation. His Saturday night in town, his marijuana and his opium smoke, and oh, what I wouldn't give. An evening newspaper, any place back in the Midwest. She would leave work around press time, make a beeline for some walk-down lounge near enough to the paper. She could feel vibrations from the presses through the wood of the bar. Drink rye, wipe her glasses on her tie, leave her hat on indoors, gossip in the dim light with the other regulars. In the winter, it would already be dark outside the windows. The polished shoes would pick up highlights as the street lamps got brighter. She wouldn't be waiting for anybody or for anything to happen, because she'd only be Clark Kent. Lois Lane might not give her the time of day anymore, but that'd be okay. She'd be dating somebody from the secretarial pool. They'd go out for dinner sometimes to this cozy Neapolitan joint down by some lakefront where the muscles' policipo couldn't be beat. So instead of being able to fly every place, her friend had replied, you'd have to climb into some car you're still making payments on. Drive on out, you, Clark Kent, to the scene of some disaster. Blood, corpses, flies, teen technicians wandering around stoned, eyewitnesses in shock. Superman never has to get involved with any of that. Why should anyone want to be only mortal? Better to stay an angel, angel. D.L., more generous in those days, only thought her friend had missed the point. I, I picked that quote for a couple of reasons. Um, one, it's a better interpretation of Superman than Quentin Tarantino had in Killville Volume 2. Uh, B, I think <laughs> that it is, it is very telling of, you know, where DL is at in kind of this stage of her life, hoping to escape kind of the person that she's become and journey off and try and take a vacation from her life as we all sort of talked about at the beginning. But I think there's also an undercurrent there of her trying to indicate to Frenessi that she is interested in her romantically, which I think can go, you know, which if you're not, paying close enough attention can kind of slip out underneath the the superman clark kent comparison because when dl transitions from talking about superman specifically to what she would do 
if she was in that position, she's talking about dating someone from the secretarial pool, which is traditionally women in that in that field, and is trying to and ends up spending more time talking about what that would be like. The two of them going to these nice restaurants, the two of them, you know, spending these these evenings together. And she has this whole fantasy between her and this other woman worked up in her head that she is, you know, basically delivering to the person that she is very interested in. And at the end of all of that, instead, Furnessy just goes, so you wouldn't want to fly anymore? You just want to be a normal person? And then, of course, she's missed the point in, in two ways, in my opinion. She's missed the point from what Furnessy is saying about her taking a vacation from herself, but also her trying to 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 probably illustrate to, to Furnessy that, you know, she's also looking for a, a relationship with a woman and is hoping that that person is Furnessy. You liberals. Always looking to shoehorn <laughs> in a baseless interpretation into classic works of straight fiction. I know. I know. The, uh, yeah, I'm... Uh, I would have taken that if I wasn't like 99% sure that you would. Because, yeah, it's a pretty great, it's just an awesome paragraph. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it really is. Yep. So, Cody, for the first time ever, closing out the quote segment. Yeah, and how the tables have turned. So, Will stole my backup quote, and <laughs> Luke uh, stole uh, my uh, main uh, one. Uh, uh. <laughs> so... <laughs> Uh, while Luke was reading his, I have been scrambling to find a third one that I hadn't planned on. Um, but I did actually find one that I think, uh, I, I did really enjoy. I just didn't think to write it down when I was doing my notes earlier. So this is on page 141. Uh, it's when, uh, DL's talking to Prairie and Prairie's questioning about, um, Frenessi's true nature. Um, I could never figure it either, kid. He was everything we were supposed to be against. But the shock had been different for DL. It was in finding out that he loved Furnessy but did not possess her and was driven to fetishism in faraway countries as his only outlet, helpless to change, obsessed, though it gagged her to admit it, as DL. As, excuse me, and Ralph, the fucker, must have known the whole story all along. Was he getting off on this? What kind of a sense of humor was it anyway? Sometimes, waiting in her room, she'd wonder if this was all supposed to be some penance to sit, caught inside the image of the one she'd loved, been betrayed by, just sit. Was it a cone she was meant to consider in depth, or was she just finally lost in a great edge-to-edge -edge delusion, having only read about Frenessy Gates once in some dentist's waiting room, or standing in line at the checkout, whereupon something had just snapped, and she'd gone away to make up the whole thing? And now... Uh, and was now not in any Japanese whorehouse waiting to kill Brock Vond at all, but safely within a mental institution, stateside, humored, kindly allowed to dress up as the figure of, of her unhappy fantasies. For company, while she waited, she left the tube on with the sound off. Images went rolling in and out of the frame as she sat, quiescent, sometimes teasing herself with these what-is-reality uh, what exercises, but keeping always balanced, right on that line, attentively breathing herself through the turn of the hours, the rise and fall of the five elements and the body organs governed, the combinations, the dance of husband, wife, and mother-son laws. Today, of course, you can pick up a dedicated handheld Ninja Death Touch calculator in any drugstore, which will track, compute, and project for you quick as a wink. But back then, D.L. only had her memory to rely on and what she'd learned from Inoshiro Sensei. Obliged early, she and her brain, to enter a system of eternal repayment humming along with or without her existence. Sensei called it the art of the dark meridians, warning her repeatedly about the timing. Perfect blow to the correct alarm point, but at the wrong time, might as well stay home. Run, watch a Run Run Shaw movie. 
She asked if she could visit him. They said no. I just think that it gives a lot of insight into her as a character um, mm-hmm. and, and the, the kind of isolation in which she lives and, and the inherent paranoia that comes with that. Um, and it's beautifully written also on top of yeah. that as, as with, you know, like that's why I had chosen what, what Luke picked is, you know, what, exactly what he said. That is some of probably the best prose in the book. Um, so I'm, I'm glad I found another one, but, um, yeah, there's a, there was a lot of really, really good writing in this chapter. Yeah, that's for sure. A lot of cross pollination. We're starting to get to know each other too well at this point. I know, right? Every, everyone's stealing quotes from each other. Will somehow knew what my quote was going to be. I, I do think you kind of hinted at it earlier. I don't think that was uh, my ESP. Hmm. It's entirely possible. Time. My ESP is primarily directed at the New York Times and at um, Aspen. <laughs> Makes sense. Very quiet. Yeah. <laughs> um, most pinch on part of the chapter. What the fuck is Agro World? That's all I want to know. That's thank you. There, there, there's. <laughs> There's reviews of of these these castle backwoods dojos. There's centerfolds apparently, because at one point DL was a centerfold in Agro World. And what is almost runner up in the dangerous mis- teen mispassion too. So yeah. there's a connection there. <laughs> like whatever the hell it is. Spe- speaking about like the world building, I forgot who had brought that up earlier, but speaking to the world building element like there is he's he's building the world of martial arts here um and man do i just want to know what aggro world is what is yep. in the average issue of aggro world <laughs> i took it's gotta be interesting world as like a, a, essentially a, a place for pension to direct his his clear hatred of soldier of fortune Oh, yeah, for sure. to that incredibly litigious organization which thankfully Holy is now shit. gone so we don't have to say allegedly for anyone who doesn't know again youths soldier mm-hmm. of fortune was a magazine that was essentially run by the the dictatorship of rhodesia to trick americans into joining private military corporations it was something else cool magazine yeah um yeah, and its whole aesthetic was that kind of like fetishization of hyper masculinity. Pick like, it up at the gas station next to the auto trader. Yeah, and I mean, like even though naked it is women with guns and stuff, or, well, it may be gone, but it's, I mean, it's the concept behind it is certainly not. I mean, that carries on still. So the war has integrated itself into our lives. Yeah. Damn, I forgot all about Soldier of Fortune. <laughs> Jesus. Unfortunately, I hate to I hate to break the illusion, but while it is no longer a printed uh thing, it is a website that that of course st- it is. still does uh like articles and all of that. Most pinch on part of the chapter, Luke. My pick is probably um the whole fiasco with the eye contacts. Um just because mm. i mean as a plot device it's just so odd um and it's so bizarre that and absurd um uh, that whole thing um because you know pension obviously needed a way to for i mean I don't, I don't necessarily i don't have a lot of experience with writing books like pension does and stuff but he obviously needed some type of plot device to make Takeshi the one to receive the um the 
vibrating death. death. Yeah. Yeah, vibrating death palm, vibrating palm of death or whatever. Um and you know the the plot device of the of the eye contacts just strikes me as something that only pension would would include. Um <laughs> other authors would probably go to great lengths to like describe the lighting or like you know have to actually do an impression of a white person or something. I I'm struggling yeah. with the other ways to that, that could yeah, happen. But jump through hoops for sure. Yeah, and it it's just pretty like it's it's just kind of it's just done in a really a really pension esque way. Um, I mean, it's obviously pension writing it, but um, that that struck me as the most pension part of the chapter. Yeah, I, I, not an obvious pick, but I think a really solid one. Uh, Will. So. Oh. You got turnabout, Cody. That was going to be my most pension part. And then uh, Luke, you just took my uh, my backup. Aha. <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. My revenge. Well, I can I can give you some time, Cody. What's your most pinch on part of the chapter? <laughs> um, I didn't. I, when I was thinking about this, more of it was in the second half. But if I had to pick something from this half, honestly, probably the the kaiju Godzilla, um, occurrence. I think that's very much in line with his. His sense of humor and and blending of genre elements. Mm-hmm. I think it's probably the obvious pick, but it, it's it's a fitting one. I think. No, I agree. Was that enough time, Will, or do we want to talk about the existence of the Ninja Death Touch calculator before we circle back? To oh you? yeah, I, w- I did want to. <laughs> so that was get around going to, to that. Be mine. Is that some kind of like Tiger Electronics thing, or like those old watches that can control VCRs that our teachers hated in elementary school? Um, but yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll go to my like seventh choice of just the, the name of Wawazume Life and Non-Life Corporation. Oh, <laughs> That's sure. hilarious. Life and Non-Life. Yeah. Might as well call it the Wawazume Everything Corporation. <laughs> they only do insurance. Yeah, nothing else. Just insurance. Just insurance. All right, well, I think that brings us to the the end of our discussion on the first half of Chapter 9. Um, we do not have any listener comments or questions to go through this week, so uh, definitely, you know, I, there's a lot to explore in the in the Godzilla portion, so if you guys have any thoughts or reactions to the discussion that me and Will and Cody and Luke had about it, then please write in. Let us know what your thoughts are. Um. And we will see you guys next week for the second half of this chapter. Hopefully you all have a nice holiday, uh, whatever you may be celebrating. And yeah, we look forward to bringing you the rest of this, this, this mammoth chapter full of ideas and, and zany concepts. Thanks for listening. Bye. See ya. Adios. Okay, so casting the Vineland movie, we we need to nail down a a John Wayne type. Scott we, Eastwood. We could. Uh, I still think the best John Wayne impression is David Cross's from Arrested Development. Well, I feel like if but David that, Cross walks on, he can't on play screen that. as Brock Vaughn, everyone's gonna fucking <laughs> just start laughing. Yeah, yeah, he can't. He can't do that.
I could see Scott Eastwood doing it, or if Alden Ehrenreich was not a baby-faced 25-year-old, I could see him doing it from a vocal perspective, but he's not old enough. See, the thing is, I can't think of anybody who has both the look and voice to fit that that characterization. Patrick Wilson, maybe. Oh, that's not bad. That's, yeah. Um, that's getting somewhere. Oh, what's his name? He was on The Expanse, and he was also in Boogie Nights. Um, Who was he in Boogie Nights? So long since I saw Boogie Nights, I don't know. <laughs> um, that's not a movie that I can just Tom, sit down uh, Thomas and watch. Jane? Yes, that's who oh, I was yeah. thinking. Thomas Jane could do it, yeah. Yeah, Thomas Jane could be a good Thomas Thomas Jane was in Boogie Nights. Yeah, yeah, he, he is. Todd. It's, God. Oh, I gotta watch that movie again. That's no, I, that is <laughs> Boogie Nights is not a movie where I can just go. Yeah, hey, I gotta watch that. It's not. No, it's, <laughs> it's not a movie where I can just sit down and watch Boogie. I Nights. can't. I certainly can't anymore. I've got children here, so <laughs> I have to parse out the time that I can't even watch a movie. Um, I think the bigger question, if we even back out further, is whether PTA is the right director for it because honestly like the last reddit thing that came up on it where they were quote-unquote confirming it i still don't until i actually like see something from the studio or from pta i don't i'm not considering it but that being said like is he would he be the right director for it i saw a couple of suggestions in that in the the thomas pension subreddit thread that you know, I didn't hate, but I, I, I don't know. I trust Paul Thomas Anderson to, to honor the story. I do too. Someone mentioned Soderbergh, I think. And that, yeah, yeah. That's that Soderberg would isn't be good. bad. That's he could do it. But I think, I think, I think he's done doing studio way. work now. I, I want to see it. It would be bad, but in a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> way. I don't know. It could be like Schizopolis has a very disjointed feel, but it still holds together in a weird enough way that like, I don't know. That's the thing. Is like some of his weirder stuff almost makes me think he could do it pretty well. Yeah, I think if there was somebody between PTA and David Lynch, I would say yeah. that would be the person that I want to go to. Maybe I don't think Donald Glover's ever directed a film, but I feel like the feel of Atlanta um, could map very well to. Yeah, Vine I would have Land. seen Atlanta. That's true. I need yeah. to watch more of that show. Yeah, it's very good. Because I, I think, sorry, you go. I was gonna say because well, I saw that. I think that while Lynch, the book is very Lynchian. I think that he might be a bit too far out there for yeah, Vineland. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I agree with 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 what Will said in that. Like, I don't know if PTA is the right fit, but I know he'll at least like do a good job. I, mean, I think Tarant- he'll at least this is probably a bit cliche, but Tarantino. I mean, he did the Manson movie. He did the Kill Bills. Yeah, he's, Tarantino has the right. Obvious. He has the right influences. I just he's just. Because, I don't know if the, if it was Tarantino in the nineties, twenty years ago, Tarantino. Yeah, yeah, Tarantino. Now that would be the most insufferable movie, I think. <laughs> but it, I mean, if someone else wrote it, which it would never happen, but if someone else wrote it, right. it would be pretty good. I think. Yeah, that's fair. But that's the thing is that I mean, PTA doesn't do other people's scripts, so. 
And I don't want to, I wouldn't want to see a Tarantino script done by PTA, especially after reading what Fiona <laughs> Apple said about the two of them together. What did Fiona Apple say? You didn't hear about that? You didn't read that? Oh man. I don't think so. She, she stopped doing cocaine because she was stuck in a room with the two of them doing cocaine and just uh, basically like jerking each other off the whole time. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah. I can't imagine that. Cause this would have been like late nineties era of those two. So yeah, at their most, uh, self-obsessed and, um, patting themselves Choice. on the back. Yeah. I mean, so one person named it and I, I, I don't, it's, it's one of those things where I, it's kind of the opposite of, uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. I think that Yorgos Lanthimos would make a really interesting movie inspired by a pension book. That's true. And I, I, I could see that. Yeah. Would work, but it, it's a little too, um, it's a little too poppy, I think for his style. I mean, poor things does look, it has, does look like it has maybe I could see him doing like, I mean, against the day could be interesting by him just from the trailers I've seen for poor things. Someone, I'm looking at the subreddit right now, and someone mentioned, I always pictured Ideal Against the Day adaptation as an anime series for some reason. I'm trying to parse that in my head and see how that would work. But I don't think... I think um, taking kind of a... Uh, maybe not literally the, the style of the... Um, of the Spider-Verse movies, but the general approach to animation of basically shifting it as the story goes is kind of necessary yeah. for against the day. I was going to say it would have, I think if it, if it was done in a different style for different sections, that's real. And it would, it can't be a movie. It would have to be like a, almost a mini series, I think to cover everything. It could be um, like Buzz Lerman's recut of uh, Australia. He just released far away down six hour cut. Jesus. Mm-hmm. Isn't that movie already like three or four hours? Yep. Yeah. I don't think anyone wants to watch Baz Luhrmann for <laughs> I can't. I I have such a fascination with him. Because he doesn't make great movies. But he tries so hard. We we were using um my wife and I were using the Romeo and Juliet movie that he did as an example to my son of when a movie's soundtrack is better than the movie itself. <laughs> so uh, we were trying to explain to him why, like, because he's really interested in, like, he's, he wants to understand, like, Shakespeare and stuff. And so we we're like, well, it might be a little bit difficult to, like, dive in like that, but something like that movie might be a good jumping in point. But that's where we we're like, but the, honestly, like, it's not great, but the music in it is awesome. So there's that. I mean, I, I hate that movie so much. I just do. I, I don't have a justification for it. I just don't like it. I get what it's trying to do. I've like never... I, yeah, I can't. I can't with this. It's just too much. It's... Everything's happening, and it, there's... Yeah, there's just too much. Anyways. Everything's happening. What a way to describe Baz Luhrmann <laughs> as a filmmaker. It's very accurate, though. I think outside of The Great Gatsby, that's I feel like that's the only movie where his style has mapped cleanly to what he's trying to do. Um, Didn't see that one. I actually don't hate it. Like it's not bad. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I check it out. 
I don't know if it's the best adaptation of of Gatsby that's possible, but I feel like what he was attempting to do actually succeeded, which I don't know if I can say about any other film that he's made, <laughs> except for maybe the 99 Romeo and Juliet movie he did. But that was before he got too crazy. I will defend Elvis. I think Elvis is exactly what a movie about Elvis Presley should be. Haven't seen it. It's, I, I mean, look, Boz Lerman makes movies about, like, ideas, but they're bad ideas. They're just, like, things that people always talk about. And so you sit there and you watch the movie and it's like, yeah, I get it. Thank you for doing this weird maximalist project to deliver an incredibly trite message. Um, and that's really the, the root issue of all of his movies. And who is Elvis Presley except or who was Elvis Presley, I guess. Um, <laughs> I guess. He is alive. I knew it. Will just spill Will's, uh, Will's an Elvis believer. <laughs> who, who was he except for somebody who, who not necessarily allowed. That's a, that's a bit of a mean way to frame it. But wh whose personality was subsumed under his persona. Who was he except for somebody who got it's true digested by popular culture and spat back out and died because there was nothing else for him like that's the person a Boz Lerman movie is made to be about that's but fair. was was the movie successful in breaking that down no so that's the thing I don't want it to break it down I want it to be that I'm I am a formalist in that sense and I think it succeeds in that way. I think that if you don't think of Elvis that way, then it's a very stupid movie. But I think if you think of <laughs> Elvis as somebody who is a Boz Lerman movie, yeah, it works. See, I, I enjoy your perspective, but I feel like Boz Lerman is not thinking about that when he's making, when he's <laughs> making his movies. I mean, you can it's stumble into offered. something great without, yeah. you know, aiming for that. Um, I did just see on the on the Reddit uh, someone, I, and this could work. I think Charlie Kaufman could do Vineland. Um, Man, I don't know I if think, Charlie Kaufman's funny enough. Well, see, that's the thing, though. Is that like he's he, fucking so depressing? If, I laughed did you, so much in Synecdoche. Synecdoche is is I think covers both the drama and comedy pretty well. But I would say, like, if you don't think he can do comedy, read Ant Kind because that book's absolutely hilarious. And absurd and, yeah. and weird and everything else. Granted, it's but, not a movie, but... Well, the two things that Synecdoche and Antkind have in common is they're both really long. Whereas, yeah. like, That's... so if given, if given the space, I guess he can add some humor, if nothing else, to maybe not put his audience through misery for the well, entire runtime or reading time of whatever he's so putting out there. I'm, I'm thinking now about the so it just in just in thinking about the way that the the story shifts from past to present so seamlessly if Kaufman wrote it and Michel Gondry directed it you get those two back together i don't know yeah that could potentially work i could see jordan peele doing vineland too there's always terry gilliam which i think we've talked gilliam, about gilliam yeah before. gilliam yeah. could do it yeah. I would be very curious what like a um uh what's her name um Greta Gerwig um, I was just thinking that would do with that source material 
I feel like she could she could hit the intersection of like very earnest familial drama with humor pretty well. Yeah. And there's always Michael Bay, you know. <laughs> <laughs> there is when when in doubt, there is always Michael Bay. Written by Greta Gerwig, directed by Michael Bay. Oh, but we could but we could get Snyder and get a Snyder cut down the road. Mm-hmm. He's great with female characters. Yeah, that's make for sure. Old, make old Snyderverse, but it's a, it's all a pensions books. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, yeah. problem <laughs> solved. We did it. I hate that so much. <laughs> You'd have to go find wherever Michael Bay went to go cry after he tried to do a presentation on Sony televisions. I was about to say, has he even done anything lately? Oh, he sure has. Two years ago, he released a movie called Ambulance Baby, which I only know. Oh, that's right. Because because the trailers were advertising that it was the highest rated Michael Bay movie since Transformers 1. What a low bar. (laughs) It was literally in the fucking previews for that movie (laughs) that it was the highest rated on Rotten Tomatoes since that. And I was like, if that is what you're going to to sell your film retire like you you clearly are are beyond where you should have existed it has a 68 percent on rotten tomatoes which is a d like if we we convert that to a letter grade that's and that's the critics review the the audience rating is 5.8 yeah god yep is bruckheimer still involved in all of michael bay's projects I think Probably. Bruckheimer has to be in a retirement home at this point. No, he did not do Ambulance, surprisingly. Mm. Good for Michael Bay. I feel like Bruckheimer's like a vampire. He steals people's life force to keep <laughs> himself alive in Hollywood. Exactly. <laughs> I could Bruckheimer see that. Bruckheimer always, he always looked like he should have been the villain in Die Hard. Like, yeah. Gets, like, there's the whole teeth thing. Like his obsession with changing people's teeth. That says a lot about a person. I don't think I know what you're talking about. He is doing the new Beverly Hills Cop that we all asked for. What so. the fuck? Beautiful. So yeah. basically, Jerry Bruckheimer really is really proud of his veneers. And for a long time, anytime he did a project, he would basically force the star, if the star didn't have basically perfect teeth, to get veneers done by the same dentist. That's really weird. It's like levels of creepy that I can't conceive of. Yeah, that's like cultish. And, I, you, know, it, you know, I might be speaking based off of rumors or something. Maybe I'm wrong. So, you know, Jerry Bruckheimer, please don't sue us. But <laughs> You want to be in my disaster porn film? You got to make sure you got good teeth. <laughs> you see these pearly whites? They need to be at least two inches tall. The audience is going to need something to focus on when you're running through downtown L.A. as it falls apart. They're going to focus on the brightness of your teeth, kid. I feel like Roland Emmerich might be accidentally getting some shots fired at him. And he doesn't deserve that. He deserves <laughs> no, of a lot course of things, not. But not that. Roland Emmerich gave us Geostorm. He can do no wrong. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you saying there's a better film in his I mean, his filmography Roland Emmerich did that. do he did do Godzilla he could do Vineland Godzilla 2000 98 
98, yeah, with, with oh, Matthew Broderick. Yeah, yeah. What a classic. I remember watching oh, that so while I had a 105-degree fever one afternoon. <laughs> it probably made that more enjoyable, if anything. I remember having a great time, and then oh, I, sat, I sat down to watch it again um, healthy, and it was the most miserable experience I'd had in years. I saw it in the theater, and that was the first, I think that was the first movie I can remember thinking I wanted to leave, but I was with my parents, so I didn't have anywhere to go. The entire time when I was watching it the second time, I just kept thinking to myself, why is Matthew Broderick in this? I just couldn't. Why is he in anything? I don't, that's just one of those actors I can't, just, I don't, I don't know. Well, he was hot shit in the 90s. Yeah. Was, was Election also 1998? 97 or maybe even 96 so they saw election and said no it was 99 it was after so the, even so, so the people making godzilla saw or the people making election, <laughs> election saw godzilla, godzilla they're like this guy can like, give me that guy <laughs> <laughs> i need to make this film without him the whole thing hinges on him chris klein whatever you think matthew broderick wakes up these days with no career and he just thinks to himself where did it go wrong? I was in war games. He played right? Richard Sackler in the Netflix series last year, or it came out this year. But oh, dope sick. No, that's the Hulu one with the uh, uh, painkiller. Is is the one I think? Yep. What's his name? Birdman guy. Um, Michael Keaton. Keaton, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Birdman guy. It's just the most if, recent if anything... thing that I liked him in. <laughs> <laughs> that's fair. You mean you didn't enjoy his portrayal as, as Ray Kroc in the movie about McDonald's? I don't watch propaganda intentionally. <laughs> I still can't believe that movie exists. Oh, boy. Like and the they movie... didn't even make toys at McDonald's that you could get. Well, the movie's not kind to Ray Kroc, but... Um, no, they still should have made something. Yeah, I, I agree. I would have appreciated a tie-in. Right. Maybe business cards that say Ray Kroc founder. Right. Or I don't even know. Or just like a Michael Keaton bobblehead with, with movable eyebrows. That's what children want. Yeah. Yeah. Bobblehead of an old guy. I don't see how that would ever fail. Yeah, I still can't believe that movie was made. Do you know what? You know what? even fucking crazier. There was a brand movie made this year about the guy who invented Flamin' Hot Cheetos. Get out. Yep. Uh, yep. The, the, I mean, the story is kind of cute, but like, it's not a movie. No. Like, same thing with the story about the like Air Jordan shoe. Like, okay. Yeah, great. I, I, saw, I, I saw that that was a thing. I understand that this was a big cultural moment. Why does anyone care about the corporate side of Michael Jordan's sneaker? Why is that exciting? There are films languishing in development hell that could be good, but these are the ones that we choose to give our money to. Why did Ben Affleck write and direct the movie about the shoe too? Why hey, that is that going through some shit? He needs the dude's money. Got problems. <laughs> but like, that was the most confusing thing to me. Like Ben Affleck's film career is one of the strangest. It's a real roller coaster. Things that I've ever seen in my life. He starts as like a writing partner with Matt Damon, which is great. Does all these like roles where he's stereotypical Boston guy, which is awesome. 
and then kind of starts to go into weird romantic comedy territory for Jesus knows what reason. And then after that, his, he bottoms out of the end of the film industry and is like, well, I guess my time as an actor is up. Let me start directing. How he didn't get laughed of every single film studio when he made that suggestion is mind-blowing. Even more mind-blowing is the fact that he was a great director. Dude, really good. Yeah. For three films in a row, this dude knocked it out of the park. And then he made Argo and won a Best Picture and Best Director for, like, I don't know why. He deserved it for any of the other films he directed yep. up to that that's, point. That's why, because he didn't get them for the other ones. <laughs> I hate the Oscars. And then <laughs> and then he, he takes a break from directing to star in Gone Girl, which is, like, his best performance of his entire career. And then after that, he goes, well, I'll go back to, uh, to acting again. And he's Batman for who who knows what reason i didn't hate his portrayal of batman but it was one of the strangest choices and then he decides i'll direct again and he makes live by night which is an adaptation of one of my favorite books and it's an okay adaptation and then he takes another break from all that gets divorced and then comes back with a movie about a shoe in which he plays phil knight like what you did forget about uh, both the Jay and Silent Bob reboot and Clerks 3. Okay, yes. He Those did are, have he, two cameos. Yes. So he got back in touch with his roots. Yes. Uh, his well, Boston part of roots. It, he didn't, I don't think he's done anything with... No, he did do something with Damon, didn't he? I feel like I he did something recently with duel. Damon. Did Damon have something to do with the writing there? Yeah, yes. he did. Yeah, yeah they, he co-wrote it with like 8,000 other people, it looks like. It looks like Nicole Holofcener, uh, Ben Affleck, Affleck and Damon, yeah. Credits, but yeah, it's been workshop for years. So. Weird. Yeah, no, that's it's it's a weird journey he's been on. For it sure. is. I feel like he's just lost his mind. He's like, what if we made a movie about a shoe? And what if it was my return well, to directing? I mean, that's a that's probably a product of the ups and downs that he's gone through. Like, legit, the dude's got chops as an actor and a director. He does. And a writer. Like, he's, he's got skills. He just applies them in bizarre ways sometimes, which is not an uncommon thing, especially in Hollywood. Yeah, I think he just needs to pick a lane. That's the problem, though. That lane doesn't always put paychecks in the mailbox. He doesn't need money. Like, I... what, what, what could Ben Affleck possibly need money for at this point? His gambling debts. Again, allegedly. <laughs> Did he have, I thought he had like a real messy divorce with either Garner or uh, Jennifer Lopez. I don't think it was with Jennifer Garner. I think that just kind of happened. But then Blamed again, I, I'm not up on all know. that. I don't keep up with any of that stuff. I don't know. So, look, I don't know. Looking at the Affleck filmography and... <laughs> Affleckography. We've, <laughs> we've been we've been ignoring the fact that there is like a whole crew of directors who, at this point, they're all pretty old, and so you know they're boring. But like people like Ridley Scott could probably make a very good Vineland adaptation. Like people uh, like Ridley Scott. Have, I don't. I don't want to see Ridley Scott's Vineland. I think he could do it. I don't trust him. If to. he got out of his own way, maybe. But he tends to get really self-indulgent, and when he does, it just becomes a real shit show. Oh, yeah, absolutely. He needs, like, a decent producer keeping a hand on his leash. 
He needs a real tight leash, yeah. Which he um, would he would he wouldn't allow that. Yeah, probably. I don't know. Like, I'm thinking Fincher, but I don't think Fincher would be right for Vineland. Not for Vineland. I honestly like maybe Lot 49. Lot 49, he could do. Yeah. He, honestly, Bleeding Edge might be good for him to do too. Yeah, that would work for him. I could potentially see Mason and Dixon as well. That's kind of a mind fuck to imagine. Yeah, but there's that undercurrent of like impending the doom parts of, to of Mason, Mason and Dixon. Dixon yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, no, I get it. I think it's not a bad idea. I just hadn't thought about it at all. That makes yeah. I don't know. We should again, talk about the book. Though. <laughs> again, though, who the fuck is Leonardo DiCaprio supposed to be playing in Vine? If he's, playing I can't see him as Lloyd personally. He can't. No. He can't. But I, who is he? I'm for it. I'm all for it. I think it'll be good. Oh, Gary Oldman could be Brock Vaughn. <laughs> Gary Oldman could be anybody. That's that true. He's a chameleon. But uh, yeah, Gary I think Oldman could be Isaiah two four. He could. <laughs> Legitimately good. <laughs> that might come across a little. <sighs> I don't know. I don't know who DiCaprio would be. That that one I'm really struggling to wrap my head around. Yeah, I don't. I if he's Zoid, I think I've lost all faith in PTA. I mean, he could be like, but I can't imagine him taking a. a, a I hate. I hate to say backseat role, but. He'd have to be somebody that's not any of the major characters. Like he just wouldn't fit for for Brock for Zoid. Um, he's Doctor Deeply. I was gonna say maybe he's Weed Altman. <laughs> actually, yeah, that would work pretty well. That actually might. That actually, I I think he would be a, a perfectly fine Bond. I like the idea of him as Zoid because it's very silly. But I actually do. I disagree with you on. on I don't one. think he's imposing enough to be Vond. That's the thing. It's like mm. I don't think he's physically imposing enough to. He has too big of a that. forehead. Uh, I don't know. That's like casting. This would be. I don't know. I don't know. That's the thing, though. Like that's where I kind of trust PTA with it. Like his casting is always pretty spot on. So I feel mm -hmm. like he could. He would get the right people for it. Who okay, well so who should play Zoid then? Uh and you can't say Joaquin Phoenix. That's not No, I know. That's the easy answer and it's Holly Shore. That's an idea. That's almost not bad. <laughs> that almost I'm kind of joking. I'm kind of joking, but I, I think Keanu Reeves um uh, Keanu might be able to do it. Would potentially be good because he tends to be as good as his director and writer is. Yeah, yeah. And he's got he's got the right, I think, like sensibility for that role as like a delusional hippie. I'm a, I'm operating under the assumption that Regina Hall is going to be DL. I I mean I I don't think she would be a miscast for for Frenesi, but I would prefer to see her as DL. I would, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel that like that would make more sense as deal. People are gonna. There's gonna be people who complain about if if she is Frenesi that like, oh, she's not black in the book, it's and it's just woke like, casting bullshit. Yeah, yeah. That, that's that's annoying, but it really doesn't matter. It does she, not. She totally like. There's no reason she's not. 
Like, I don't know who would. I don't know who would be good for Zoid. I really don't. I mean, Owen Wilson is an easy one that I think would work. <laughs> That's. Oh man, I, he like. How many time, How many wows are we gonna give him though? Oh, none. That's gonna be like the he's whole contractually movie obligated to say wow at least once. He's so fucking good in inherent vice. Like he really is. He really. It, like, yeah. Yeah. That, that's what I'm thinking of. Is that's kind of a similar character. I yeah. remember when he when when he walked out of the fog in that scene. I was like, okay, this is gonna be either really good or mm-hmm. I'm gonna really be pissed off. And it was absolutely really good. Like the fact that that was the first movie I'd ever seen him in where they just gave him. Cause that movie is largely like long single take conversations. I feel like I've never mm-hmm. seen Owen Wilson in a movie that gave him that type of material before. And I was like, man, this really gives him an opportunity to just like actually perform as opposed to being a caricature of something like that, that whole scene with him and doc at the table where he's, he's talking about like his family and his kid. And then, like his political aspirations and leanings and all of that. And then just that quick switch that he does towards the end of that conversation where he stops yeah. what he's saying. And then he just goes, man, I, I blew this solo. Just like that. It feels so naturalistic and almost like an ad lib that wouldn't be in the script, but it is obviously like, yeah, his performance in that movie is so amazing. Uh, it's really out of type for him. Uh, let, let me find his name, but he's the guy who was um, the lead in A Serious Man and... Oh, Alan Firth? No. Oh, uh, Daniel Stuhlbarg? Or yes. whatever? My, yeah. Michael Stuhlbarg. Michael, Michael Stuhlbarg, Stuhlbarg. Yeah. 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 I think he'd be a decent Zoid, actually. Yeah, that's fair. I could see that. I love A Serious Man. That's That's one of my favorite movies. very good it's just very good yeah the amount of times that somebody has interrupted something that i i'm doing and then i just go what do you want we're sitting shiva here in that accent that he has in that movie is uh innumerable or or his like final breakdown towards the end of that movie where he's trying to see the 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 last rabbi and he goes and i don't i don't really know what she does it seems like it's she mostly washes her hair and there are multiple steps involved and it takes a while (laughs) his performance in that movie is amazing it's it's so satisfying Mm -hmm. but we probably should like like cody said about half an hour ago now (laughs) yeah We, we should talk about the book yeah okay uh we'll have to we'll figure out the casting at some point mm-hmm. and they'll have to do what we say <laughs> yes absolutely i'm, yeah, so I'm we, really looking forward to part two there's a lot i wanted to go over so. we were we recorded for three hours on part one well so. half uh, half an hour of that was our bullshit movie talk so <laughs> bullshit movie talk that was high quality film discussion that's true yeah that's true we you know the be, kind of gold that's in there? Yeah. We should be doing commentary for Criterion output. 
one of my previous podcasts that I used to do was a film commentary uh, show where we would just pick a movie and then like we would just describe the opening title so that they could sync it up. And it was just me and a friend of mine providing like random thoughts or reactions to the film. Oh, that's funny. I do love a good film commentary. They can be really bad though, but I've heard some really good ones. Yeah. We were not under the impression that we were doing anything scholarly. It was just the idea oh, was not like, even not even necessarily scholarly. Like <clears throat> I've heard some just absolutely hilarious ones. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's 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 it was it was a lot of fun to record. And the the impetus behind the show is just like, what if he was like you were watching movies with your friends? That's yeah. really all we were going for. That does sound fun. So, Cody. Yes. I stumbled onto the, the Twitter uh, account a couple of days ago. Uh oh. And I, I can't, saw I'm not held accountable st- for anything I put on there. Stumbled onto no, I mean, it? <laughs> well, I, did, I actually did. Um, but uh, I'm just. I'm just curious. Is this the first time you are reading Moby Dick? I don't remember. It ab yes. And let me let me give some backstory to that. There's a reason for that, kind of. I just it I, so I did miss out. Like I said, like way back earlier, um, I spent a lot of time not reading after college and uh, missed out on an opportunity to read a lot of classics and whatnot. Uh, Moby Dick has always been on my list, but my, my wife that like, she hates that book with such an undying passion that I've always <laughs> just kind of stayed away from it. And the reason uh, being she had to read it like, th- I think three times for college and it just got destroyed for her. Like college literary classes tend to do. Um, so she, it's not that she doesn't understand what it's trying to do and get at she just is frustrated at having to have read it so many times sure um so i can't falter for that i am absolutely loving it though um so i'm I'm having a great time with it have you gotten to the whale parts yet that depends on what you're describing as the whale parts uh they the, the very long description of whale anatomy oh yeah yeah and... yeah, yeah i i got past that yeah okay um, no, I'm at the part now where they have, um, uh, Queequeg just rescued, uh, I can't remember his name from after he fell in, Pip. um, when they were, yeah, when they were disassembling the, the whale that they had killed. I love that scene. That it was, was really good. One. That was the chapter I read right before I came out, came in to record. It's, um, no, I, I, it's one of those things I'm, I, I don't know why it, I, I know why it took me so long to get around to it, but I wish I hadn't taken so much time to get around to it. Um, it's also like, it's, it's, I think it's astonishing for the fact that it was written when it was, and it's very um, queer and gay friendly. Um, oh yeah. It's a super gay book. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> there was, oh. I just saw a thing. I don't know if you're, any of y'all are familiar with the man carrying thing. I did. Yeah. Did I've you see seen that. Reading I did. Moby yeah. Dick? Yeah. Yeah. But yes, it's, I'm very much enjoying it and I will reread it, I'm sure, at some point in the near future. Yeah. I just didn't want to like go into the conversation and, uh, yeah, not really, there's not really anything to spoil in the book, but, you know, ask you about things that you hadn't (laughs) seen yet. Yeah. We, no, we'll, we'll talk about it when I finish it. I would, I would love, I know you've read it a few times. 
Um, yeah, yeah. I just I love Queequeg so much. I do too. He's he's my favorite. It's where Starbucks gets its name from. That's not surprising. Yep, first made Starbucks. Yeah, I hate Stub. I can say that as you should. That guy's a piece of <laughs> shit. Like that whole chapter where he was like, like just the most passive aggressive, like dressing down of the cook. I want. Oh, I wanted the I wanted the cook to push him out of the boat so bad. He's hilarious. It's very good book, but he's horrible. Yeah. yeah, he is. No, it's a good book. I'm enjoying it. He's one of those characters that you enjoy hating. I oh yes, very much. Yeah. As a love to hate. Yeah. Kind of character. Yeah. Uh, there is a there is a film adaptation of an Otessa Moshfeg book in theaters right now, so you all need to go see it. Oh, so that book is it? Eileen. Okay. Yeah, Anne Hathaway is one of the main characters. Um, yeah. Go make sure that Otessa Moshfeg succeeds, please. Uh, well, we'll have to check it out. I haven't. I haven't watched a movie. Well, no, I take that. I, we we have. You've never watched a movie. Never seen a movie. You've been bullshitting really hard <laughs> this whole time. Yeah. For no, my movie watching a year <laughs> has diminished. Like I watch, we watch every, something usually every Friday. We do a family movie night kind of thing, and I try to show what I can to my kids to get them into stuff. Like we we did go and see Monty Python and the Holy Grail um, on my dad's birthday, which was a lot of fun. That was the first time my kids saw it, and I my. It was a quote along version of it, and my sister and I were the only ones in, in the theater that I think did the entire movie, okay. and not just the parts that they threw up on the screen. I've watched that movie so many goddamn times. I love it. Um, so now my my kids are my son took <laughs> I had two empty halves of coconut from an old time an old screening <laughs> I saw at the draft house where they did it, and he took those to school the day after and was clopping around the halls. No one knew what he was doing except a few of the teachers. But yeah, we, I, I just don't have the time to watch movies that I used to. It sucks. That is a shame. The only movie that's come out this year that I've seen was Saltburn. Which you I also saw Oppenheimer, Will. Nope, yeah, I was going to say. Didn't see Oppenheimer. Nope. Look, it's a Nolan movie. I don't care about it. So it doesn't <laughs> go into my catalog of things I've seen. Did you not uh, see Barbie? I didn't see Barbie. I've seen oh, that. That's, that's a shame. That's a sin I, I against. I really intend to. I just literally just don't go see movies very often. Yeah. No, I don't either. I Did you like Saltburn? Because my one of my employees, uh, who I normally agree with her opinion on stuff, went and saw it. And she hated it. So it is. Um, it is. From what I understand of. Of his work, it is an Evelyn Waugh novel crossed with American Psycho. If that That's doesn't an interesting sound great, you will hate it. <laughs> it's not an amazing movie, but every scene is like executed perfectly. It's one of those things where if you buy into the absolutely batshit insane premise and the whole vibe it's shooting for, it's great. But it is trying to do something really specific and really obtuse and really like. It, it, like it tries to get you to like betray yourself as a as a viewer, hmm. and you know the director is uh, she loves drama, <laughs> so there, there's a lot of that. Not not as in like in the as a as a 
part of the story, but I mean it's in like she likes being provocative. And there's definitely a few scenes that are just in there to piss people off. I've I've definitely had I think seven people now send me the scene where Rosamund Pike says that she used to be a lesbian but everything was too wet. Yep. I've I've had yep. so many friends send me that quote. Rosamund Pike is fucking amazing in it. Because wow. That character's awful. She's great in like everything that she yeah, does. Yeah. She is very good, yes. So yeah, definitely not like a broad recommendation, but uh it's a it's a movie for people who want <laughs> Brideshead revisited crossed with American psycho. That's such a bizarre That is a weird combination, but I idea. love it. Um I will say if you got on a going back to books, if y'all are looking for something short to read, um my wife and I both read uh This Is How You Lose the Time War. Um really really good i very much enjoyed yeah that. that is a very good book i read it like two years ago yeah i've read some of amal elmatar's short stories um and really liked them um so this yeah i really enjoyed that book it was very good i i i am really enjoying reading meet me in the bathroom that's what i've been reading for most of this week if you guys are into like the 2000s rock revival in new york that like Interpol and the Strokes and the that's AAS okay. I was gonna say I knew that and, that title and that's why. Okay, it's covering those bands. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's really interesting. It's it's there's no. It's all like in basically an oral history where um, Lizzie Goodman just interviewed like a shit ton of people, and by shit ton I mean like the the cast of people that are in this book literally takes up three pages at the beginning of it where she she tells you who everyone is um she interviewed like band members she interviewed a and r people she interviewed like bartenders and bar owners who were around the scene when it was happening she interviewed freaking everybody um and then what she does is she just lays out all of these different quotes one after the other that form a narrative of the scene as it developed and grew um, and she moves through different phases of it and different bands and everything. It's it's awesome. It's one of the best music books that I've I've ever read. I need to check that out. I was gonna that that makes me think. I I should have mentioned it at some point. I, we still can. Um, I think a a good read to tie into Vineland uh, would be our band could save your life or our band could be your life. Um. Because that covers a lot of the early 80s uh, underground punk scene, um, like Minutemen and um, fucking like Big Black and Husker Du. Mm-hmm. Sonic Youth is in there, I think, at some point. Um, replacements and like a ton of those those bands. And it sounds kind of similar to the uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom. I totally forgot about that Meet Me in the Bathroom, but I've, I've seen and heard of it and I've a few of those bands I like early Interpol. I like a lot early. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I still wish I, I had a chance to see the, yeah, yeah, yes. And I missed them. Are you a fan of LCD sound system at all? No, I ne- I never could get into LCD sound system. Okay. Just I, never I, was my thing. I, I am. I like LCD sound system. James Murphy comes off like a total tool. Uh, in yeah. all, in everything he has said in this book so far, every time he wow. talks, 
every time he talks, I'm like, shut up. Like he's a, he's a pension fan. Is he? That makes sense. Me. Yeah. I mean, he, he did, he did a song for, uh, the white noise movie adaptation too. Um, but like, there's a portion early in meet me in the bathroom where he describes the first time he ever took ecstasy. And it is just the most pretentious, like, uh, it's just so insufferable. I don't doubt that at all. Yeah. It's like, dude, you made good, good music. Let's just leave it at that. It's always kind of sad when you, when people who make good art can't, uh, are just bad people. It isn't even Not necessarily, necessarily that he's that, a bad people. No, but it, like, it's like when they articulate themselves like that. Yeah, it, it, it doesn't seem like he treats anyone poorly. He just seems like a total pretentious asshole. Yeah. Well, you, don't, you don't think that the deep insight of feeling pretty good for six hours gives him license to declare like broad statements about humanity? Now I want to see. This book is sitting next to me. I want to see if I can find this fucking ecstasy trip. Having... I'll, I'll be honest, there are a lot of drugs that make you feel that important and like that things are that profound. Ecstasy, I get why people feel that way. But if you say that kind of stuff after you've sobered up, I think you need to look in the mirror. <laughs> Sober. I spent an evening taking care of someone who had taken ecstasy at a house party we were at. We were at and it taking was Taking care of? It was insufferable. Like I had to make sure she was hydrating and like, you know, it was one of those things where we were just kind of concerned about her general, cause she'd never done it before. And the person who brought it to her just kind of up and left. And so we were like, all right, somebody's got to keep an eye on her. So it was just a lot of like, okay, yeah, that's great. I'm, okay. Sure. Sounds awesome. The, the only time I ever did it, I just had a good time not having social anxiety and paranoia for a while. Yeah, I did. I just kind of walked by. I did ecstasy for the first time whenever I was in college at uh, South Padre Island. And actually, uh, Little John was uh, DJing at the club I was at. Oh, shit. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was pretty funny. (laughs) Holy fuck. That's a guy I cannot see outside of Chappelle's show anymore. He's always just that version of Little John. Okay, I, I I did find this portion where he takes ecstasy. Um, Tim Goldsworthy. For the first month or so, James wasn't taking part in the drugs because he was still American indie. Quote, don't do that. It's uncool. Unquote. He was still with his ex-wife. Her family invented plastic bags. She lived in the same building where Iggy Pop lived, the Cristadora building, in a stupid-sized, amazing apartment. And she's very old-school American indie. He was coming from his post-indie thing, which was a bit tiring. I don't think it was necessarily that he was a failed rock star. He'd been successful at what he was doing. It was more dot 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 with James where a switch flipped and then he decided he wanted to win. James Murphy. I smoked a lot of pot and then I quit. A lot of my friends were junkies and a lot of people died. So I wasn't like super give me some drugs, man. But I was really uptight and had been for some time. Tim Goldsworthy. So yeah, we weren't pushing the drugs on him too much, but he came out a few times and in a very James way, every five minutes would be like, and how are you feeling now? Is it really good? Ah, that sounds amazing. And how are you feeling now? James Murphy. I'd already seen David at Marcus and Dom's party. He wanted to do a basement thing underground after making the record, so we just went. There were just a bunch of people, though we hadn't quite gelled as a crew yet. 
We were not yet the DFA wrecking crew. I'd go and listen. Tim's gold Tim Goldsworthy. But then it happened. I guess James probably got clearance from his therapist that he should do some ecstasy because he was big into that. Three times a week therapy since he was like six or something. So one weekend, James decides that he can do it, and he buys about 20 packs of Juicy Fruit because he's heard or read somewhere that you chew a lot of gum when you're high. Within the first half hour, he's so excited that he's handed out his chewing gum to everybody in the club. So now there's a whole nightclub full of people just chewing Juicy Fruit. Oh, God. <laughs> Marcus, wow. Marcus Lampkin. That's classic James, to get prepared for something, to get all kitted out and have everything ready. James Murphy. I was like, sure, I'll try one. I was just going to try it. But then it was the greatest thing ever. It was fucking awesome. And I was dancing and I was happy and I had a revelation. This is actually me. I was fully me. I was dancing and I was fully conscious. I wasn't sloppy. I wasn't drunk. I was alert and I was aware that I really enjoyed dancing. This is me dancing. This isn't the drugs dancing. This is the drugs stopping myself from stopping myself from dancing. David Holmes. I watched his life completely change in that moment, and it was beautiful. Tim Goldsworthy. Because David, Phil, and I are old hands at this, we give the signal, and David put on Tomorrow Never Knows. James Murphy. I peaked right when David played Tomorrow Never Knows, which is my absolute favorite song from childhood. And they were all around me chanting my name and pointing at me, and I was losing my shit to my favorite song. It was great. David Holmes. He just went insane. Tim Goldsworthy. James was just like eyes rolling back in his head and young ladies who were friends of ours started rubbing themselves on him you could see he was having this ah moment james murphy people talk about drugs and it's very dumb but the reality was very clear to me i really connected to what i cared about and after that moment i danced to what i cared about i was changed why is that in the fucking book not not like <laughs> daring the editor but like why the fuck did he think that needed to go in the book I don't know. <laughs> like, good for him, but that's not interesting. No, it's not. <laughs> it's not. I learned I like to dance. Right. Yeah. I, I guess because technically LCD sound system is dance punk. So maybe he felt like he needed to explain how he ended up being okay with dancing. Like, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. The fact that he was the guy who's like, how are you feeling now? And then five minutes later, just asking that, like, ugh. I know people like that, and I don't want to spend time around that. How old was he? At the time? I mean, yeah. probably in his 30s? Yeah. Jesus. Yeah, if you're, like, fucking 17 doing that kind of shit. Let me see here. Whatever, but, like, God, man. You're a grown-up with, like, things to do. James Murphy. How old is he currently? He's 53. So he actually could have potentially been close to 40 when that happened. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, well, so other, <laughs> other than making James Murphy look like a massive tool... <laughs> Uh, Meet Me in the Bathroom is a really good book. 